You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 157. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you like to find your podcasts. We are maybe there, probably there, kind of, sort of, I don't know. If we're not, let us know. We'll figure it out. Um, yeah, something. .net. And we got uh, we got a, a website at cookingbox.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and uh, things like links to uh, to podcasting places. Try to make it easy for you. And you can send your feedback, questions, rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Hey, be sure to follow us at Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. And with that, I am Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm done. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the cloud-scale monitoring and analytics platform for end-to-end visibility into modern applications. All right, and today we're talking about writing great APIs, and we'll get to that. Uh, But first, we got a little bit of news. Yep. So we got a review at iTunes from HHSkakeIDMD, something like that. Thank you. Okay. I was curious to see, like, I, I purposely gave you that one because I'm like, Alan's usually pretty good at pronouncing these things. I want to see what he comes up with for this one because I looked at that one and I'm like, mm, <laughs> no, I would, I would, I don't think I would do it as good as you did. So, you know, hey, good, good for you, sir. I appreciate that. Um, and then on Audible, we had a new review from Column Ferry. So, uh, and I remember, I recognized his name from Twitch when we were doing the game jam. Oh, excellent. Awesome. Yep. You know, Column, uh, I saw a tweet of his recently. He's working on the game in uh, PixJS. It looks amazing. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Uh, I want to be working on that. So, yeah. Well, which reminds me, uh, you know, we talked about doing something else. So we did the game jam, January, uh, back in uh, January. And we talked about maybe doing something else. So, you know, if we were to go for, say, two a year, uh, that would put us around July. And we haven't really talked about what that might be. So if you have ideas, then leave comments and a tweet or whatever, because uh, we're, we're going to need to start thinking about it pretty soon. I thought we did talk about that last episode, and we decided that it was going to be based around um, the theme was going to be sprints. And I was just going to like retheme my closing tickets to be closing sprints oh, yeah, or, that, or hey, story points or something. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, uh, no sure yeah please fine. define fun for somebody fine. how about hey. that we define apis oh hey when you ask you a stupid question you get a stupid antsy <laughs> so thank you caspers i like it nice we're off to a good start so let's do this all, all right. right so apis we had the uh, the idea to talk about uh APIs and basically writing really good APIs. Cause if you're a backend developer, you're probably writing a lot of APIs. If you're a front end developer, you're probably also writing APIs and you're probably also consuming a lot of APIs. In fact, it's pretty hard to do any sort of coding without consuming a ton of APIs. So that might be fun to take a look at uh, some tips for writing good ones. Cause a lot of times people don't even realize or don't think about themselves as being API authors. And we're going to fix that today. I like it. So definition on Wikipedia which we'll have a link to, of course, is an application programming interface. Uh, it's a formal way for applications to speak to each other. Back when I first heard this term, public was in there. They used to say application public interface. So that was kind of interesting that it's changed 
Um, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really know why. I don't remember it being public though, but yeah, me neither. I could, maybe I got that one wrong on my <laughs> um, multiple choice question in college. Uh, in mnemonic. <laughs> if you remember, if you know why, uh, <laughs> let us know in the comments. Uh, so APIs define re- requests uh, or actions that you can make what you need to provide in terms of like arguments and what you get back in terms of responses. And if you do any Googling, then you are going to see a ton of articles about web APIs, very specifically rest. And I thought that was really interesting to see that the word API has kind of taken a, such a strong meaning there because it really doesn't mean web APIs. It doesn't mean rest. It's much more general than that. And so we've got a list here of different types of APIs that you have surely interacted with if you've been programming, but you may not have thought of being uh, APIs. I don't hey, know if so, somebody else wants to go for that. So real quick on that, though, and we move this around on the show notes. I'll shift them back up in a minute. But to that point, you hear API and a lot of people think, you know, web requests or whatever. But a very popular or very big one, I should say, that's available out there that has nothing to do with HTTP at all is the... Linux kernel. And I have a link down here and they've got tons of APIs for all kinds of things in their system interrupts, you know, just tons of garbage. So yeah, APIs are just, if you want to call something programmatically, this is your contract to do it. Yeah. And really, if someone has published something that you can use to call their code, we're calling an API here. So that's just about all code you're going to be interacting with unless you're like doing some spidering or you're you know, like hacking around some stuff in, uh, I don't know, the game genie or whatever, uh, then you're probably going through an API. And so um, one example here uh, might be every single library ever and every single framework ever. Yeah. So the .NET uh, framework, you know, that li- set of library, uh, that library, those set of classes, that's a, a version of an API. So there's the Windows API you could program against. So if you wanted to create an application and get events from the operating system as things happen, right? Like you're using some Windows API to make that happen. Oh, that reminds me. You remember when .NET was making that transition from the .NET framework to core and all that? There was the .NET standard library. All that thing was, was a standard set of APIs for things to be able to interface with so that, you know, you could write it for Linux or Mac or Windows or whatever, and it would work. So as long as you adhered to that standard set of APIs, then your stuff could run cross-platform. Yeah, and speaking, I mean, you already mentioned that Windows APIs, so things that uh, Windows uh, Windows can do. Uh, remote APIs is, uh, is, you know, it's kind of similar. It's basically just remote actions that you can kind of take that uh, – that's kind of older way of doing things. Uh, SFTP. It's kind of a, a fun one. If you've ever telnet and done anything like you go in, you open, you send some stuff, you get some stuff back. Um, that's uh, an example of an API. Um, web, of course, is in there. So we mentioned that. So rest, but also soap. Uh, if you're doing Hattie OS or however you say it, um, very strict uh, rest. Uh, and GraphQL also is another, another API that you might interact with, or rather it's a, it's a type of APIs. Many, many, many GraphQL APIs out there. Uh, Domain-specific languages, so like SQL, that is an API. Literally, it's a way that you communicate with someone else's program in order to affect changes. 
Uh, so the formal definition of APIs and who owns them and what can be copyrighted, whatever, is really complicated and it's still kind of being defined. Uh, you know, Google, uh, Google and Oracle just had a major court case that's been going on for the last, like, I don't know, 20 years or something about uh, the Android API and the different uh, Java calls that Google kind of emulated in order to behave like uh, Java and be able to say that you worked in Java on their platform. Um, you know, that was a, that caused a big stink. And so the definition is still kind of in flux, but I just want to kind of emphasize that when we're talking about APIs in this episode, we are talking about the ways that people interact with your code, how they make your code do stuff. By the way, that uh, Google lawsuit that you're referring to, didn't that just end? They won? Did it yeah, wrap up? It did wrap up, and it's been appealed finally. several times. So I, I think this is, is this the final one? Uh, I don't know about a final appeal. I, I'm not a lawyer, so uh, I play yeah. one on TV, though, yeah, so know. you can check me out, <laughs> Channel 46 on your local. Um, I know it's been uh, like somebody won several years ago. <laughs> so this is definitely not the first time this has been declared over, but it may be the last. Maybe. I put, I put something in here too, cause you had like remote API, but um, I think, you know, unless you correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, more commonly you might hear that referred to as RPC. So yes. Um, also uh, remoting. So if you're, um, Sometimes uh, this is less common, but um, used to be able to kind of do weird stuff like um, kind of <laughs> almost like P invoking or whatever to kind of calling things remotely, either on your system or otherwise, where you're kind of like marshalling commands in and out and like P invoking or whatever. Um, so I, I meant very just like just communicating over socket kind of. But yeah, gRPC is like the way you do that now and it's much better. Yeah. So RPC would be remote procedure call. Yep. Just to be yep. clear. And gRPC somehow brought that back. I thought I thought that was just done, but you know uh, it turns out there were good things. You know what's funny about the gRPC thing is I know it came out of Google, and I always assumed it meant Google, but it doesn't. Like it, a lot of people say that the g the the g the g has changed meanings as it's been versioned, but at one point it was like geeky RPC. So the the thing, yeah, it's it's weird, but apparently the G does not represent Google, which sort of makes a little bit more sense because it's a lowercase G. But yeah, I don't know. It's like every version they change the meaning of the G. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Probably written in Go, and so they wanted to throw something in there for it. I don't know. Possibly, yeah. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I uh, came up with a little list. Uh, we put together some things that we thought of, like. If you ask me, like, what are some good APIs? Um, and the first one I put down was Kubernetes because um, it's very consistent and it's got like a cool plugin architecture, which is something I think that would have been really hard to do. And they managed to to make a, a do a good job of it in a way that makes sense and that works with a lot of tools and uh, allows for pluggability, which I thought was really cool. And everything is annoyingly versioned. So if you've ever done anything with like the role based authentication or you know whatever they call it, um, role based security stuff uh you've probably seen where you're like you have to specify the scopes that stuff are in and so sometimes it's like well deployments are under apps slash v2 and some other thing is under apps v1 and some other stuff is just under nothing it's just version with the main version of kubernetes and so it's kind of interesting to see uh how they did that and how they have so many different versions and how it all kind of makes sense like scaffold is a tool we talk about a lot it's got its own version uh, and it's cool to see how they kind of plug that stuff in so that you can use 
newer versions of, say, Kubernetes with older ways of doing things. So it's kind of cool to see that uh, Kubernetes is made up of many versions, which is not something that you see often, but I thought was cool. Uh, Kafka, as much as uh, I'm sometimes frustrated in uh, how Kafka makes me feel like a dummy, <laughs> uh, if you look at their APIs, actually, uh, a lot of them are really simple uh, and really well done, like schema registry, Kafka Connect, stuff like that. They very much stick to the kind of standards. Um, so uh, after you get kind of used to what's available, you can pretty much guess what their APIs are going to be. So if you need to delete stuff or get the status of something, uh, it's all just pretty much going to work like that. That's always and a great we, feeling when you like you get to the point to where, you know, you understand their API enough to where you're like, I guess I, I bet there's something like this. If I just like search for these keywords, I'll probably find it. Yeah, that's a sign of a good API. Real quick question, though, when you're talking about their APIs, I assume that you're not talking about like their CLI stuff. You're talking about their Java, like admin APIs and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, and the CLIs, uh, it's okay, but uh, I, you know. <laughs> Uh, I think Kubernetes consistency is much better. It's like, you know, it's Kubernetes, Kubectl, Git, and then some sort of noun or resource type. And so even if you, if you go and install the Prometheus plugin, essentially, you know, uh, like the, the operator or whatever, and it installs those custom resource definitions, you know, it's Kubectl, Git, Prometheus, right? Kubectl, Git, whatever. And you know that, um, that stuff is just going to kind of plug in where you expect it, which is really nice. Um, I put Pygame and, Py- and Pixie.js because those are two examples where they introduce new abstractions. So whether um, those libraries are writing to uh, WebGL or SDL or whatever, uh, they've got some some nice consistent abstractions where say like you write to like a texture and it doesn't matter which library you're using underneath because it just kind of glosses over that. And so th- that was just kind of an example of something where it's like anytime you're working with graphics – Really nice to have an abstraction that kind of saves you from that. So I really appreciate those interfaces. Cool. Yeah. And what I threw in here, because it truly is one of my favorite, is S3. So Amazon's S3 API is for their simple storage. Can't remember what the service. third S is. Service? Is it? Yeah, service. So the thing that's interesting about this is by them creating such a good API for their cloud storage, other companies basically said, hey, we want to compete with them, but we want to make it easy for developers to switch over and use us, right? Um, or different applications, right? Like it may not even be a developer. Let's say that you have a backup solution that is backing up to Amazon S3. And then you find out, oh, wait a second, Backblaze has a compatible API that's a quarter of the price for the same storage amount. I want to switch over there and it might just be as easy as pointing to a new URL because they've implemented the same APIs. Right. And then there's uh, another like Wasabi is another company that has done the same thing, right? Like they've provided cloud storage using the same S3 APIs. And so just by doing that, you can, you make it easy for developers and people to adopt your technologies, but you might also make it easy for other people to sort of piggyback on you and and create shims or replacements, slide, you know, slip-ins for that kind of stuff. Well, isn't Kubernetes like the ultimate of that? Like, oh, that- hey, how do we get into the cloud uh, oh. business? We're a little late to this, and Amazon already has all of it. I tell you what, what if we just abstract the whole thing? Right. The you could just run your cloud anywhere. Yeah, it's true. Uh, that is true. I mean, honestly, like one of the projects that all three of us had worked on in the past – 
one of the things was they wanted to be able to make it run in the cloud and on-prem, and that's why we chose it, right? Like, yo, we can create this thing. It'll abstract away all the hardware and stuff. As long as we got some compute, we can make it happen. Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, we talk about Kubernetes, how you have to get certified. So if you want to say, uh, hey, I'm Linode, and I and we offer uh, Kubernetes, that means they had to go through a, a rigorous certification program and be able to be able to use that capital K word. And that meant that they had to go in and they had to meet these interfaces. And so when you create a new service or whatever, it'll go and provision the, the right load balancer or whatever behind it. Yeah, yeah I was curious. Cool. So I uh, I did a search for like, hey, what are some of the, the most popular APIs? And came across this website that I hadn't heard of, Rapid API. Oh, I saw that one too. Yeah. And uh, there's some interesting ones that came in here. Like some of these, I was like, okay, yeah, I could see that. Like uh, Yahoo Finance was in there. I'm like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Uh, there's one I hadn't heard of it specifically, but Open Weather Map. I'm like, okay, it would make sense that uh, you know somebody want might want something for uh, you know that there would be some weather one in there. Um, although I kind of expected it would be something that you would have heard of more like a, um, you know, weather channel or, or, uh, weather underground or something like that. Right. But, uh, you know, it was in there, but then there were some funny ones in here though, that I was like, I don't know what that one is. So, uh, one of them was the Chuck Norris API. (laughs) So I was like, okay, well that just has to be awesome. Like there's, there's, you know, where could that one possibly go wrong? Um, the Urban Dictionary will tell you where it went wrong. <laughs> so, yeah. Then there was one for jokes. So, so just joke API. So I'm like, okay, I should probably uh, use that one. Um, and then there was actually a couple of jokes. There was a joke API <coughs> one in there too. So, yeah. Uh, and then and then there was like another link that came up for the same site. that was like the top, uh, you know, some free API services that were available. So they... You know, Amazon's, uh, there was one for Amazon products. So you could get like real time, uh, uh, data about products and reviews and whatnot from Amazon. Uh, there was another one for Google search that I thought was interesting. Um, and then just like, you know, kind of topical related to what's going on in our current world, right? Like, so there was another API just for COVID. So I'll, I'll include these links in there too. You can go check out the Chuck Norris API. Excellent. Uh, I also wrote down uh, some of my least favorite, and I should I want to clarify. This doesn't mean that the APIs are bad. It's just these are ones that like don't love working with. And uh, the first one I got to mention is Elastic. And the reason why I say Elastic is because it's got a really big API that's done in uh, basically essentially a domain specific language for the most part, which is just a big JSON document. Which means it's hard to get uh, tooling that uses like say autocomplete or something. And so little things that like, um, well, I want to filter by range. It's like, well, okay, so I, I've got my object and in there I need a query and there I need a, a bool, which has a must, which has a filter, which, oh, let me go look how the range works. And so it just uh, crafting those things the first time. Uh, and you know, obviously you get better at it, but it's just, it's not as easy to get started with and it's super powerful. And that's why it's kind of so all over the place, but it's, you know, it's not the kind of API that you can really start kind of feeling out on your own. Like you're going to be spending a lot of time in the docs. Uh, pandas. So the reason I mentioned pandas here is the Python library that uh, is really good for dealing with like kind of tabular data. The reason I have pandas here is not because it isn't great because it's fantastic, but it's because uh, the inputs and outputs 
uh, are very flexible. And the output of the function can change based on what you pass into the input because Python can do that sort of stuff. But for me, kind of coming from like a static mindset, uh, that can be really frustrating to think like, well, I pass in a NumPy array and I get a NumPy array out, even though that's a third party library. If I pass a list in, I get a list out or um, it's just very loosey goosey. And there's all these optional arguments and stuff. So you look at any one function and it's super powerful, but it's got like 18 arguments and, you know, depending on if you're passing in a CSV or uh, an array, maybe you have to populate arguments 1, 3, 7, and 11, or maybe you just need 2 and 4, uh, which is just kind of tough if you're looking strictly at the API. I'm surprised that you didn't include uh, in your least favorite list here, like any API I wrote. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm a little uh, honored, you, but it wasn't in one of your favorites either. So I'm like, eh, I guess I'm somewhere in the middle. You know, you it, an API that I don't love, and I, I don't, I, this is maybe mixing up with a CLI, is Gits. And I know this is going to be painful for you, Outlaw. But the problem is, depending on what you are choosing, it's just what you said, Joe. Like, you have to know that you have to combine these three other parameters out of the list of 200 in order to get it exactly right. And that's, I don't know a good solution to that, honestly. I mean, it's just forget. Man, Git has got so many. Like, if you ever need to do something that seems seems reasonable, like, hey, I want to know who the last person is that touched this file. Oh, my dear God. Or, you know, like, maybe not the last person. The last person who did this the last 10 times or something. Like, the string of commands you got to put together to do stuff like that is just crazy a lot of times. And it's, it, and somebody will put RTFM out there and you're like, for real? <laughs> like, yeah, dude. like that I, I went, I went to the page and I got lost on, you know, character number 9 million. So I'm not real sure how I'm supposed to figure this out, but it's super powerful. But because it is the, Man, there's but there's not, so many combinations, a, but not an API. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not consistent, and so like you know the Kubernetes I said was very consistent. Like there's things that you can do. Like if you want to delete a service or you want to delete uh, a pod, it's the same command. You just change the resource delete. type. Yeah, Git is not like that. If you think about the four common Git commands, if you were going to go teach someone new commit, you're like, okay, well, you, I mean, you need to know about Git clone. Maybe you need to know about Git remote origin add. Uh, if you want to commit, it's commit. Oh, and we got to teach you Git add. And so some things there are verbs. Git log is not really a verb. And so it's just it's this kind of election thing. So, so imagine if it was resource pivoted, if it was resource oriented. And you said Git commit add and did your thing. Or Git commit right. undo. Or Git commit list. You know, yeah, that's Git noun much more consistent. about. Yeah. So when people think like, oh, crap, I need to undo my commit. It's not a Google to see what weird kind of type thing you have to, you know, which flags you have to pass to which commands. Yeah, I think that's what it is, really, is the consistency and the number of flags that can go with each one, right? Um, so, yeah, it, it, again, I love Git. I use it a ton, and I've gotten pretty good at it, but it is not my favorite um, interface. Yeah, so maybe to say another way, the the APIs that are my favorites are the ones I have to use the least, <laughs> or I have to know the, the least about, at least, in order to to get what I want done. Well, because they're consistent, right? Like you said with the Kubernetes one, like it, Kubernetes is massive in terms of if, if you're just even looking at the CLI, which in turn probably uses the API behind the scenes, it's 
hyper consistent. Like you said, you need to delete an app, you need to delete a pod, uh, whatever, uh, a, a persistent volume claim, whatever. It's all the same commands. Yeah. So yeah, I really don't want to sound like I'm hating on Git. You know, Git's uh, pretty old. Things were different then. But we think about like the GitHub uh, API, the, the CLI tool that they just came out with. They went resource oriented. So you say Git issue or GH issue new, GH issue list, GH issue close. And so it's kind of got that thing where it kind of branches out like a tree and it's just kind of arranged more hierarchically. And that's a newer, newer style, newer way of doing things and newer tools have the benefit of seeing other things do it and, and work out that way. I guess we can't be friends anymore. <laughs> so yeah. Well, uh, what if we had a common enemy? <laughs> If y'all had something we didn't like, yeah, I, I saw this, I saw this one coming out. This might like, bring oh. us all together. <laughs> we've 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 talked about this one before. So if you've listened to the show for uh, a length of time, then you're not going to be surprised to hear this one be mentioned. Someone mentioned. Oh, I was going to leave it. I was going to let you do it since. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I wrote down the, the PayPal API, and you know, granted, my experience with it is very old at this point. Uh, but we just had a really rough time with it. Uh, things were confusing. Um, it, it was kind of stateful in a weird way where you would have to kind of do things, um, kind of do something before you could do something else. And it wasn't very clear. Uh, you know, oftentimes you'd have to like, if you wanted to do a refund or if you wanted to collect and it just wasn't very flexible. And so it was, uh, it was a real pain to work with and uh, trying to kind of organize what happened to happen in, in your code to get the effects that you wanted. It was just really frustrating. You know what, though? I think it's worth talking about the reason here. It, I don't think the APIs were terrible. And it, like they were documented pretty well. It, it, like you said, they might be a little bit confusing. But I think the problem is they tried to model it to act like credit cards. <clears throat> like the APIs were set up to make you believe that it functioned like a credit card API. But in reality, it didn't. And that was where... So they built up an expectation by making it look like something and it didn't actually function that way. And that's where a lot of the pain came in. If I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And like, you would think um, if you had a credit card and uh, we worked for an e-commerce company and uh, there was a problem with the product or the customer called and said, Hey crap, I ordered the wrong thing. Uh, I actually need 10 of this and I need to not get rid of that item and you say, okay, fine. With a credit card, we could say, Okay, that's fine. We're going to rerun your credit card and, you know, because now your new order is more expensive, for example. And so it would go and do that. And, uh, you use the token from the credit card, which was still valid and it would go and it would get the new amount and it would be reauthorized. We get a new authorization code. And then when those items shipped, we would collect that money. So we didn't have the liability sitting out there. PayPal was very much more oriented around the order. And it kind of makes sense with PayPal because, like, you really don't know what that person's using behind that PayPal wallet. Maybe it's a credit card. Maybe it's their bank account. Maybe it's a gift card. Who knows? Uh, but PayPal abstracts that. But then when the customers would call and say, hey, you changed my order, you would say, okay, well, I can't just reauthorize your thing. You you have to take an action here. We can't do this stuff on your behalf. And so it was just really complicated to make edits. And so it got to the point where, like, all right, well, if a customer uses PayPal – then we just don't change it or order. We, t- we have, have them go back to the website and just redo everything. And th- it just was a real big divergence for all of our workflows and everything to kind of have this thing that felt to customers like it should be so similar and felt to our employees like it should just work the same way. And because of these implementation details and these restrictions and things that just worked a little bit different, it was just a hassle at every step of the way. And it, 
I wanted to bring that out though, because it's important to know that I think in terms of their actual API implementation, documentation, all that, like they did a pretty good job putting all that together. It's the fact that they led you to believe that it worked like something else that made the API experience painful. So it had nothing to do with their technical implementation. It had to do with the fact that they modeled it after something else. So, so I'm bringing that out. Like APIs don't necessarily have to be great or bad because on their own, they are, it just might be that, you know, some external influence might have caused pains in that same regard. It it was a really interesting, frustrating time. Well, it's like they, you know, going to, to elaborate on your point there, though, it's like they they didn't even model it like the real world, right? They didn't take mm-hmm. into consideration that like, oh, okay, yeah, we'll let you put this hold on the account. But because these are bank accounts, that money might not be there, right? There's mm-hmm. no guarantee, but, you know, they they let you put the hold on it. To, so, so it didn't model reality. And that's right. where that's where it got frustrating now you know that in fairness that was a while back so you know maybe they've corrected that uh, you would hope so right um you know but I, I was also thinking here too like you know speaking of some of the older apis too like older ios uh versions and xcode uh you know you know you go back to like an ios 4 and you know the xcode that you had around that time like uh you know but that, I guess, well, I mean, that's not fair because I'm talking more about the S code, which is not the, um, the API, but whatever. I digress. Yeah, totally. On that. Slack just changed our API and uh, removed a feature that we were using to <laughs> for auto signups. And so we got a problem there. So uh, send us a tweet or something if you want to get into the Slack. <laughs> so can we say that. Slack is our least favorite? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is right now for of sure. Of late, yeah. Uh, I wanted to mention that different types of APIs have their own set of common problems. So I've got a big list here uh, from REST, and then we've got some other ones. But um, I really want to kind of emphasize that REST is not the definition of API. That's just one way to do it. But it's so common that it's kind of it's making it hard to search for anything else. And there's some good and bad we'll talk about coming up here in a little bit. But I just want to kind of hit on the commonalities. Like if you are a REST designer for uh, you know, making APIs for other people to consume on the front ends or maybe other back ends. And you're probably worried about authentication and maybe rate limiting. Uh, you probably have interest in async commands, if not everything async, at least for like larger reports. You ever see that? It's a, that's a good way to make me hate an API is have something that's async where I have to come back and keep pulling, see if it's ready yet. Uh, filtering, sorting, pa- sorting and paging, something that's really common. So if you're writing APIs like a, for a website, uh, that's something that you're probably intimately familiar with. Caching, error handling, uh, game libraries. I mentioned that uh, uh, abstractions over graphics libraries earlier. There's a huge emphasis on like inheritance and hidden systems a lot of times. So like if you're working with a game library, it can kind of be hard to to work with at first because you'll try to do something like add text or something only to realize that the text system hasn't been initialized. And that's not something that you would ever get from going to Google to look at how to do text because it's something that hand, happens in a total effort, different area of your application. Um, so, you know, if you're working with a P, like big AAA PC games and you're looking at doing things like supporting multiple different resolutions and having graphics that can scale down or pop in later and all this stuff. And those are th- details that you want very far away from you. If you're 
programming something about like the the player interactions and input and output. It's just there's a lot of things that are connected and they really try hard to, to keep that from you. So game libraries have things and common pitfalls for that. Um, li- libraries for service providers. So I mentioned Elastic earlier. Elastic has libraries for Python, Java, C Sharp, um, the REST API that you just kind of meant for like humans or, or anyone else. Um, that's all really great. And every time they add a new feature, <laughs> they need to go update it for all those libraries, which have their own versions, because sometimes they need to change independent of your stuff changing. Maybe Python releases a new version and deprecates something. And so they are forced to release or have a bug, bug fix. Or, um, and they need to go out and update the documentation for all that stuff too. So every time Elastic adds one new feature, they've got a ton of different places just to communicate it that need to be updated, which is in addition to actually implementing that feature, which is something that's, that's really tough. And if you're de- designing a program or an API, uh, that's APIs that are meant to be used by multiple people, then multiple different languages. And that's something that you got to put a lot of work into, you know, who, uh, we forgot to mention we were talking about like APIs we love. Microsoft. Ooh, Datadog. Datadog. Azure. Oh, Datadog. They've yeah. got they've got a ton of APIs for like whatever your language of choice is, they've got you covered. And um, we've talked about it before in in the past, you know, where it was just like easy to like, you know, you you want to use uh Datadog with Python, pip install Datadog. It's like literally that's a thing. Yep. And uh, data stacks too, like what we, one of the things we talked about, um, I know the sponsor, sponsor is uh, we look at data dog, or sorry, not, uh, data stacks. One of the things that we were really impressed with was uh, just how easy they made it for a developer because depending on what language you were working with or um, they had like serverless options and just all sorts of other stuff. And like, that's one of the things it's really great for you as a consumer, because if I'm look, working in Rust, maybe there's a, a Rust library for it. But if you're that developer, every time, every feature you add, you've got to think about how to do it in that language. And, and I know we've, we've seen libraries that like uh, our first class Java libraries, mm-hmm. like they were designed for Java first, and then someone ported them to C Sharp, and it feels like Java. Right. The terms they use, the way things are capitalized, uh, the abstractions don't make use of language features, and that stinks. There's all these impulses. Kind of why? There's all these impulses. Right. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it, that brings me back on on APIs that the. the <laughs> I particularly like Microsoft does such a good job like in their Azure environment because they support more languages than just about any other cloud out there. And they do a really good job putting that stuff on a page, right? Like their documentation for that stuff is amazing. Don't, 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 don't limit them to just Azure. Okay. Yeah. Microsoft has been the gold standard in terms of documentation for Decades, which is Great why point. they became the powerhouse that they are, because they catered to the developer. Yeah, like everything they point. did was for the developer to make the developer easy. And so, like, you know, they for decades it was like, oh, hey, you know, you get an MSDN subscription, and here's all the documentation. You, you remember, like, you would get the CDs and you would install all the, so the documentation locally. <laughs> yes, you were. You were super excited. You know, like get that big plastic 85, box floppy disks later you've got like all the documentation like locally searchable yep. uh you yep. know but it was a big deal right like they, they've always had amazing documentation and now the thing that that they did um in recent years and i don't i don't remember how long ago it was that they did this <clears throat> but they moved all their documentation to get and so now you could be on a page and you're like oh i see a problem and you could just click on a link they'll take you to get to where you could fix it yep 
Yeah, no, their their API docs are amazing. I'll tell you who's I'm not a huge fan of is Google's. So having done some Python development on some data product stuff at Google, man, I, it's so frustrating because even we've all seen Java docs, right? Like we've been to those pages. They're ugly, but they're very functional, right? Like you can find the method names, you can find all that kind of stuff, and and you know the format, man. The 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 API documentation for for the Python stuff in 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 Dataproc was just it, it was so unorganized and it was so hard <clears throat> to actually find relatable things. Like you'd say, "Hey, this returns a job collection." It's like, well, what is that type? And then you'd have to just go googling around to try and find a page where it actually told you what a job collection was. So, yeah, I. It's not easy, but that's that's a situation where the API itself was decent, but the documentation made it so hard to work with that it was like, man, I, I don't want to deal with this. Okay, this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but uh, if we were to go to the APIs that I don't like in term, like because their documentation, then. <laughs> And this is not shots fired because you picked on Git. Like, I, I promise you. I promise Uh-oh. you. Who's this one aimed at? Well, we, we need to have a talk with Kotlin. Because Kotlin's documentation is awful. It's not great. No. What? It's not even close. Really? Really? I've never used it because it's just so obvious. Oh, oh man. Is that what it yeah, is? That's okay. Well. Complete garbage. I don't believe that either. They do have a really good tutorial page or set of pages, but yeah, their their documentation okay. if you're You get out of that need though. You're like, wait right. a minute, how do I do this? And you're like, oh, right. well, we got this uh, hello world example yeah, over here. But no, I need to do something more sophisticated than hello world. No, but we got this hello world. Use right. the hello world and it will work. Yeah, but I want to do something a little bit more complicated than hello world. I don't think you understand, sir. We got this great hello world. <laughs> like that doesn't do anything for me. Yeah, I, I could agree with you. Kotlin as a language is amazing, but their documentation suffers a bit. All right. Uh, whatever. So so the next one I actually threw in here because because we were talking about REST and REST specifically, like one of the things about it that that either makes people extremely happy or extremely frustrated, depending on on the application that you're doing is it's very noun based, right? So if you have a customer, then you're going to have a customer rest <clears throat> interface and it's going to have the get, the add, the update, all that kind of stuff. Then you're going to have an order interface. Then you're going to have an order item interface or whatever, right? The problem is if you adhere to the rest standard kind of the way that they want it out there, that you keep those things separated, right? Like you're not going to have user order interface typically is not how it works. Um, you can, um, but everything is operated on in, in individual states, right? Like I said, get update, whatever. So it made some things kind of difficult. And this is where sort of O data or O data sits on top of it. And this was for people that needed sort of more complex things to happen with their, with their web requests, their APIs. So like one thing that they have in there is the ability to pass in complex filters. So if you think about querying a database or something, right? Like you give me all the orders from customers where their order value was greater than a hundred and it was in the last 30 days, right? Like you have two filters right there that you can't really represent 
in a typical rest world because what if you want to add a different filter that says and their last name starts with you, right? Like that you don't just keep adding on to a rest thing like that. Well, OData gives you the ability to add these filters to those queries. So that's a big one. Another one is this whole notion of relating objects, right? Like I've got customers with orders. Well, I don't want to have to call two separate rest endpoints to get the customer first and then go get the orders after I got the customer information, right? You can stack those things. OData has a way of doing that. Um, and then another thing too is this again goes to why it's sort of hard because typically what you'd see, and I mean, the three of us have seen this over time is people will abandon OData as soon as they need to start passing in multiple arguments, right? Multiple search filters and everything. And they're like, well, I'm just going to create a method and we'll call this get customers by, you know, filter criteria or something. Right. And so now you have this method out there that you can pass some sort of filter object into. Well, OData allows you to do that on top of rest and invoke a function RPC style. So if you needed to do that and get away from the verb approach, which rest sort of ties you to, then they have a standard way of doing that. So um, I have a couple links here. If you've never heard of OData, I know Microsoft uses it pretty heavily in a lot of their products. And it's kind of nice to see how they've done it in case you ever need to do things like paging, advanced filtering, that kind of stuff. But you want to stay within the rest paradigm because this has actually been created on top of rest. You know, if we're going to talk about rest for a moment though, there is like the elephant in the room that hasn't been mentioned with it. What's that? Right. And I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking like, uh oh, wait for it. Outlaw's gonna set us up for a joke. Here it comes. He is. But I'm not. <laughs> um no, because with rest, like, you know, you mentioned the verbs, right? Which, you know, for anybody who hasn't done any rest uh, you know, development, then you know, the verbs that he's talking about, like, or you would post a verb back to the server that might be like post or get, like, I want to get something. I want to post something to like write it. I want to delete something. I want to tail something like there's a whole bunch of different verbs, right? But not all of those verbs are even allowed, you know, through, through some companies. So like, depending on what you, your audience is for some of that, you know, like if you're writing a business application that's good, that, you know, you're going to sell to your customers and that, that they will have inside of their business intranet, they might not allow, uh, like a delete verb, for example. So then yeah. that could become, become an issue. Cause then if you're like, well, I wanted to try to adhere to the rest standard, but it's like, uh, but you can't. He speaks yeah. from experience. <laughs> and then you also have to be careful anyway. too with like, uh, with, <laughs> you know, people might try to abuse the gets and not realize like, Oh, but those can get cached. And, uh, you know, you have to be prepared for that. So ironically, I've seen the inverse where everybody's like, oh, I don't want to deal with the gets. Um, post everything. Because, well, yeah. I'm going to post everything yeah. because I can do, you know, huge request bodies and then it's fine, but then you don't get the caching benefit. So, so when you're dealing with rest, it's not just the verbs, for the verb's sake on the server side, it's also, you, you kind of need to know what you're getting when you're running each one of those verbs because your gets can be cached by a browser or something and your posts can't. And I don't know. There's all yeah. kinds of things. So, I mean, this I, is super complicated. Yeah, it actually is. 
So, so yeah, I realized that the way I set that up, like, it, you know, you saw, it sounded like I was going to go into a joke, but I really wasn't. It was really just like, you know, a complaint about, about rest though. Although, I mean, I, I do have a joke for you about yoga, but it's not really working out. <laughs> I think we'll get some comments back on that one. Oh, <laughs> hey, what, one other thing before we head into the break here. Uh, so there's APIs out there and I want to caution and, and I'm curious what you guys say about this, but I want to caution anybody from, from calling APIs directly from your front end. Maybe if you're just trying to do a POC or something, fine, whatever, but anything that you call directly from a front end, if you're doing a web client, especially that's all stuff that people can hack into and do whatever they want. Right? So, my take is anytime you're trying to call some API, public, private, whatever it is, it should happen from your middleware, right? Whether it's your .NET, your Kotlin, whatever, you should not be making those requests directly to Elasticsearch, for instance, from your UI. You should not be making requests to that weather API from your UI. Your UI should be talking to your own server, in my opinion, and then your that server should be making the request out to the thing because then you can safely scrub and make sure things are the way that they're supposed to be coming and going. So I would, I would say it would definitely vary by use case. Like, you know, cause maybe your use case is you don't want to have a, uh, a server, a server running. Right. Um, so there's that, but then, you know, keeping in line with the things that we've learned from like clean architecture and clean code and pragmatic programmer and things like that, then you know they would advocate for you um, having a front, uh, you know, by by allowing your your front end to talk directly to those multiple services, then you're creating that dependency at that layer. Whereas if you put it back on the server side, you could you know put a wrap a facade around it, or you know wrap some kind of layer, you know, some kind of boundary layer around it, so that you limit its exposure. Yeah. And that's really what I'm getting at, especially if there's, if there's any kind, if you have to authenticate, do not ever call from your front end, you know, that should be going through your, your middle tier somewhere. But, but yeah, I I mean, I agree. Like if it's a POC or if it's some like little utility you're creating just for fun and maybe it's your own use case, fine. But if you're going to expose it to the world, then you need to put some more thought into it, I think. So you need your back end, or sorry, your front end for your back end, your gateway to all your other stuff. You do, you do. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, a software as a service based monitoring and analytics platform for cloud scale infrastructure, applications, logs, and more. Datadog uses machine learning based algorithms to detect errors and anomalies across your entire Slack. Which, sorry, stack, which reduces the time it takes to detect and address outages and helps promote collaboration between data engineering, operations, and the whole rest of the company. Now you've made me curious, though, because you said Slack and they have like so many integrations that I'm like, huh, I wonder, do do they have a Slack integration? Because that would be kind of nifty if they do. I mean, they they have integrations for everything else, so I wouldn't be surprised if they do. And I'm looking and maybe I'm spelling it wrong. But, uh, you know, the real thing, though, is we're talking about uh, APIs here. And, you know, as I just mentioned, they have APIs for all your platforms, too. So not only do they have like 
whatever your favorite, you know, uh, tech stack is that you want an integration for, they've also got for whatever your language of choice is a, uh, an API that you can use for that. So just such a well thought out product that, you know, uh, I can't gush over enough because they just have so many awesome things that they offer. And if you don't find it, what you're looking for, I guarantee they probably have a blog article about it and it'll point you in the direction of what you were looking for. So they've got you covered in like a thousand different ways. There's no, there's no uh, shortage there. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, both the blog and the APIs because I was actually just looking at their docs uh, because uh, however I want to look up something for Datadog, that's where I go is docs.datadoghq.com. If you just search Slack there, 183 results. And if you go look at any one of these pages, you will see that there's many, many ways to integrate with Slack. Uh, But that's not even the thing that's most interesting. How well organized it is, the images that they have to show you exactly what you're getting and what it means and how to set this stuff up with examples in multiple different languages. I mean, it's just fantastic. It's uh, really a pleasure to read. It's kind of <laughs> makes me want to go write some better docs. Um, even just on the top right, you can select uh, multiple different languages, uh, different sites. I mean, it's just uh, really laid out really well and they made it really easy to do a whole lot of things with Slack and a lot of other integrations that uh, I'll mention. Yeah, so uh, as you can tell, we like Datadog quite a bit, and we're pretty sure you will too. So head over to datadoghq.com slash codingblocks and start your free 14-day trial. If you start a trial and you install a Datadog agent, Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. So again, head over to datadoghq.com slash codingblocks. How about that? Just out of the blue, we picked a technology and they had an integration for it. Yeah. It's insane. They got it for everything. You just slash invite at Datadog. <laughs> yeah, isn't that cool? That's so awesome. That's yeah, and cool. seriously, like for very like if you go to like page 180 or you know, 18 or whatever it is for uh, the last ones, like some of them are very specific or like integrating with your distributed tracing and so you can get, get like very specific information about how something kind of got there. Uh it's just really cool. They're amazing. All right. Well, it's that time of the episode where uh, we ask, hey, uh, what do you call a pig with a black belt in karate? Bacon. Bacon. There's got to be bacon somewhere in there. Well, the answer is pork chop. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so thank you, Mike. Uh, Mike RG for both of those. But uh, no, seriously, this is the time where we would typically ask like, hey, if you haven't already left us a review, uh, if you enjoy those jokes and all the other ones that people have submitted to us that uh, we've shared, then, uh, you know, hey, we would greatly appreciate it if you left us a review. Um, you can find some helpful links that are plural now, uh, since Alan thankfully uh, updated that for us. And, uh, you know, it's just a two-year uh, support ticket. Uh, but he got on it within the first two weeks of it being asked for. And so... <laughs> with service with a smile, my yeah, friend. Yeah, yeah. We're good. Uh, but yeah, we would appreciate the review. So you, you can find some helpful links at codingblocks.net slash review uh, to your favorite uh, podcast destinations. And uh, with that, we head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. It's the tip of the week. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, that's later. That's your favorite portion. Of your- How do you not know this yet? Right. How long have we been doing this? Yeah. Well, we're off to a fantastic start. Yes. Okay. Um. So back in episode one fifty two, we asked, "What's your favorite Python feature?" And your choices were all the machine learning libraries, or the Jupyter Notebook support. Or pip install everything I need. Or, and this might be my favorite, the virtual environments are the best. Or I require a lot of matrix multiplication. Or it's so easy to visualize data. And lastly, it's not Java. Which is not a lie. It really isn't Java. So... Uh, according to, uh, to Tutco trademark, um, you know, rules of engagement for the, the episode here, uh, this is an even number. So it would be Joe's turn. Wait, no, oh, wait, this, this is an odd number. number. Sorry. Is, oh, the, the, uh, the other episode was, a the other, I was looking at the episode 152, which was an even number, but you're right. This is 157. So, uh, this would be odd. So this would be Alan's turn time to go first. All right, so I think we can totally eliminate the virtual environments. Those might have been used in 1990. Come on, I think I think we've gone away from. That. Don't, come on, man, that's not even. You know that's come on. Go. <laughs> you know you're wrong. You know you're wrong. Uh, so I, you know what, I'm going to say here that I think it's, man, I think it's so easy to visualize the data. I'm going to go with that. And I'll say 22% of the vote. 22. Easy to visualize. There's a lot of options here. Okay. Ah, geez. Well, it's not Java, but I'm going to go with Jupyter Notebooks at 40%. Oh. Bold. All right. I like it. I like where we're High at roller. here. So, uh, Alan says, it's so easy to visualize data at 22%, I believe you said. Yep. And... Joe picked Jupyter Notebook support with 40% of the vote, right? Yep, at least. Oh, we both lose. Yeah, you're both wrong. How <laughs> really? It was staring you in the face. It's not it's Java. Not <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. In of my course soul, I knew it. The one. Of I course. Knew it my soul. Even that's people so that write Java are like, yeah, I'd rather work in like, you know, anything else, Scala, <laughs> Kotlin, something. Uh, they don't mind the JVM. Nobody minds bytecode, but Java. Right. It's not Java. That's so, why yeah. there's Groovy, Scala, Kotlin. What else right. compiles down to the JVM bytecode? <laughs> Closure. Closure. So, you know what's bad? If people are choosing Closure over anything else. <laughs> it was 55% of the vote, by the way. Oh, wow. Nice. What was number two? What was number two? Number two was pip install everything I need. That, that's a good 20%. one. It is easy. Yeah. I can't uh, believe you guys let me down that voted by, with the virtual environments. Yeah. What, what place did that come in? Fourth. <laughs> <laughs> so disappointed. Uh, um, yeah. So, uh, okay. I can, I can give you this episode survey or I could give you a joke. Which one would you prefer? Joke. Joke. All right. Guy walks into a bar and asks for 1.89 root beers. 
The bartender says, I'll we'll have to charge you extra for a float. Guy says, all right, we'll make it a double then. <laughs> uh, I like it. All right. So uh, this episode survey is how do you prefer to be interviewed? And your choices are behavioral interview. Tell me all about your mother. <laughs> or take home project. How many hours do you really spend? Or whiteboarding, like surfing, but worse. Or multi-person interrogation room, like firing squad, but better. <laughs> or an informal dinner, because that's not creepy. Watch me chew. <laughs> or weird esoteric. How many, angel, how many angels can dance on how many ping pong balls on a plane with three potential destinations? Dude, these are amazing. We just want to know your thought process. Don't worry yeah. about getting the right answer. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because like, uh, you know, so it's a little bit of behind the scenes for the audience there. Like uh, I was telling uh, the guys that like, cause, cause there's been a lot of conversation lately in um, the Slack related to, you know, a couple of people that have been interviewing <clears throat> around at some of the big companies and, and having really good success with it. So if you're in the, the coding block Slack, you'll, uh, you know, you might know some of those conversations that I'm referring to. And if you're not, Hey, you should definitely become a part of that. And, um, you know, it made me think that like, Hey, you know, we probably should just do an episode on like trick interview questions. Mm. Like I thought it would be kind of neat. Like, of course it would be, we would fail miserably at it. So like, I would have to go ahead and come to terms with like, I'm going to sound like a fool Unlike, unlike this one, but, but I would sound like a fool different on that, that episode. But yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting though. I'll just do the interviewing. That'll be good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Here, here. Okay. Here, here's, here's one for you. You have three cups of coffee and 20 sugar cubes. How do you put an odd number of sugar cubes into each cup of coffee using all 20 cubes? What was the number of cubes? 20? 20. <laughs> An odd number of cubes. Yeah. And so how can you basically divide by 20 uh, within with three odd numbers? Uh, let me read it again. You have three cups of coffee and 20 sugar cubes. How do you put an odd number of sugar cubes into each cup of coffee using all 20 sugar cubes? I don't. Ooh, that's tough. It's like any, it's like any two odd numbers that you add together is going to give you an even. So I feel like this is the joke. No, I think you eat one of them and you put the rest of the coffee cups. Do you want to know the answer? Yeah. Wait, 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 give me one more minute. So if, if you add any two odd numbers, if I add five and three together, you get an even number eight, which means that you've got an even number 12 that's left. So there's no number, uh, that you can subtract, there's no even number you can subtract from 20 and get an odd number. So 20 minus 10 is 10, 20 minus 8 is 12, 20 minus 18 is 2. I feel like this is a riddle. I don't think it's something that you really solve. Is it something you really solve? Something you really solve. So you put 11 in one, 9 in another, and 0 in the third. You can't. That's not an odd number. It's not an even number. But it's, it's, 
but the question was that you put an odd number in each. Do you want me to tell you the answer? You ready? Well, a zero has never really made much sense to me. <laughs> it's not a number. <laughs> Are you you can't divide by it. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Yeah. Here's the answer. You put one cube in the first cup. You put one cube in the second cup and 18 in the third, because 18 is an odd number of sugar cubes to put in coffee. Oh, very. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's great. That's just great. <laughs> I, I knew. I knew. When I saw that, when I saw that joke on Reddit, I was like, oh my God, that's so good. I'm totally going to trip him up. Cause I, I already wanted to do like real interview questions anyway. So I was like, this one is going to be perfect. I can't wait. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh! I was about to like prove by induction that there's no two odd numbers you can. <laughs> I loved where you were going with it too. You're so serious. Like all these examples of like, okay, ten minus twenty minus ten is still ten. Man, when you read it, I had already bailed. I was like, man, he's gonna say something here in a second that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, outlaw. We've got an interview tomorrow. We're gonna be uh, interviewing somebody, so I think we got our first question. I that's think right. we do. I think we do. Do you, yeah. do you, do you want another one? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if you don't. Well, okay. How about this then? Did you know that 10 plus 10 and 11 plus 11 are the same thing? I believe it. Mm, No. (laughs) But they are. I can prove it. 10 plus 10 and 11 plus 11 are the same thing. So 10 plus 10 equals 20. But... 11 plus 11 equals 22. <laughs> That's what I was afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew it was something like that. <laughs> uh, well, you can blame uh, David for that one. <laughs> nicely done. Nicely Dave, done. Dave Follett? Uh No, 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 no. Uh, I don't know the username. Uh, I just know his screen, you know, the, the name that he has on there that you can see. Oh, well, thank you, David. I have, yep. I have, I have my Slack configured to where I don't see your screen name, like you know your login name. I have it oh, like yeah. whatever name you have, uh, as you know, that gets presented. You know, which would normally be like first name, last name, but some people don't put in their last names or whatever. Fair enough. Uh, all right, so well, let's get back to the uh, episode talking about writing great APIs, and now we're actually getting into talk uh, to talk about what makes the APIs great. And we, we've been using events so far, but we've got some things that are. Um, we've got gathered up here. And the first one we got is easy to work with. And that for me is kind of number one, like the APIs that I enjoy writing for are easy to work with. They install easy. They're documented. Well, I don't even need the documentation. Uh, difficult to misuse is something I thought was interesting. Uh, how do you make something difficult to misuse? I mean, you, you, you just skipped over the documentation though, saying like you didn't need it if it was easy to, to work with. But like, to me, the documentation is what makes it easy to work with. Mm. And so it's, it can be easy to misuse if you don't have the documentation to tell you how to use it. Right. Yeah. I agree with that. I think the difficult to misuse though, I think going back to the consistent, like, um, resource verb type thing definitely helps with that, right? Like just having a consistent approach to it, it makes it easy to, or makes it hard to misuse. 
I know APIs have been easy to misuse where um, like sometimes we'll work with the API and you change the verb. Maybe if you use post span or something or curl and um, maybe um, the thing that gets a resource is the same URL that you would use to delete the resource. And so like if you actually type the wrong thing or forget to, you know, when you're moving stuff around, I've actually deleted stuff that I didn't really mean to. So one example of a way to make something easy to or hard to misuse is to just change that a little bit. And so, you know, maybe that's not a great idea. Maybe you don't want to do that. But uh, I, I think if React has a dangerously set inner HTML, now they could have made like every other property and just enter HTML, but they don't want you to because it interferes with Shadow DOM and whatnot. So they actually went out of their way to make the name something awkward. Mm-hmm. And we've seen other languages sometimes they'll um, they'll have like things that are kind of private by convention with like underscores. Yeah. So it's kind of a signal to you that you shouldn't be messing with that. So that's the kind of things that I think of where it's like they've kind of gone out of their way to make it difficult for you to do the things you shouldn't. I like that. But what you said though, and it makes a lot of sense. You were talking about the whole rest thing, you know, a get like a great example is get person by ID or something, right? It's going to be person slash and then ID. And if you happen to post it with it or not post it, if you happen to submit that with a get, you'll get that ID. If you did it with a delete, it's the same URL. So, yeah, you, you totally, it's what they're supposed to do, but I can totally see where that could bite you. I, I, I like that, like maybe just trying to change that a little for the dangerous operations. Yeah, add like a second primary. So it's consistent and it's easily discoverable, but if it's something that's a dangerous action, like something you do not want to do lightly, maybe make it a little harder. Uh, add a second command to say like, yes, I mean it. <laughs> or <laughs> or like a, a second parameter, right? Like you have to add a token to it or something. I, I don't know. Anything. Anything to change it up a little. Mm-hmm. Good call. Sometimes uh, you ever seen um something will um have resources that you can lock, like a domain name. You can lock your domain name. And so you can't accidentally do something that domain name until you go and unlock it first. Yep. That's an example where you might have to do some other action first before you can delete or do something dangerous. I like it. Uh, consistency. Uh, really like that. Uh, especially when it comes to like things like uh, input and output types. You ever work with an API where it's like, it'll take a credit card. Uh, but if you call it this way, you pass the token, you call it the other way, you pass the number, you call it the other way, you pass the order for the credit card number. And it's just uh, kind of confusing. So if you can be really consistent with those, with those objects, then that helps a lot. Uh, error messaging too. Um, I like to have, you know, sometimes, uh, Languages will just throw you, you know, kind of like unexpected question mark or, you know, whatever it is, uh, something really not easy to work with. And sometimes other ones will have like really specific like error codes or links to documentation that you can find. I like that. I hadn't even thought about the error messages, but man, that's so key. You ever gotten a, a good error out of Helm or, yeah. or some of the Kubernetes things? Man. <laughs> Yep. You got to go describe the thing just to see what's really going on. Jeez, man. They never tell you. Or any uh, kind of like s- parallel, you know, errors. Oh, yeah. Can be, can be really rough. You know, like I, I, I've been having a lot of fun with scaffold lately because you can, you could scaffold up. We've talked about scaffold in the past as like a tool to where you could, um, you know, that goes along with Kubernetes to where you could build environments locally. You can also deploy them using the same tool, but, um, there's there's this capability to where it could do all of the builds in parallel, but if one of those fails, it can be super difficult to figure out like, hey, where'd that error come from? Right. Like I had I had sixty things being built in parallel. Which one of them died? 
I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's a great call out. If you're going to have an API, make meaningful errors. Help help the people out who are trying to use it. I love it. You ever work on something and you see an error in the logs and you tell someone about it, like, I saw this error and they say, oh, yeah, but that, that error is okay. <laughs> no, we expect that error. That's <laughs> not an error. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I do that all the time, but that, yeah, I shouldn't. <laughs> Those are supposed to be warnings. Yeah. Uh, so simplicity. And uh, when I say simplicity, I mean, there's like one way to do things and there's nice abstractions for common actions. And so I've seen some APIs that are really low level. And so if you want to do the most common action, then uh, you have to kind of do this like builder pattern where you're like, okay, well, let me go build this resource and build that resource and build that resource. And you're like, I'm just trying to cancel an account. And here I am building the customer object and, uh, you know, building their whatever, their order. And like, all I want to do is just say cancel order and give you a, an ID. Like that's, that's kind of stuff I'm talking about here. But also if you've got really purpose built APIs, by which I mean, you have things that aren't resource oriented. So you'll have like maybe uh, web service calls or commands that called like create cart from order or something like that, that are very, like very specific actions then a lot of times there's overlap with things like just create order, for example, where you've got two different ways of doing something, uh, creating an order, but you know, one is much more specific than the other. So for example, you know, the thing I said, create cart from order, but if you want to do, you want to replay an order, um, another way to do that would just say, we're not going to offer that fancy schmancy, whatever you just go out, get the order, <laughs> look up the products from that order, you create a cart and you add it together. So you can argue that one either way. If like, if it's a common enough action, like don't make me do those 11 things to do something that's really common. <clears throat> On the other hand, don't give me multiple ways of doing things that you have to support and each have little kind of tricks. You know, I have to know about each one in order to make them work. Uh, service evolution. This is super important. So having uh, good versioning habits and also the ability to have good versioning habits uh, I've seen a lot of things, uh, a lot of libraries that are built by people who haven't really thought much about changes that may want to make in the future. And so they get to a point where they can't get the, to the next level of that product because it would mean breaking so many other people. And so, um, you know, libraries have this sometimes where they go from version one to two and it's totally different. You know, Angular JS and Angular, totally different. And um, it, that can be remedied in some different things and some different APIs, depending on what you're doing, like uh, REST APIs, a lot of times will have a version number just right in there. So you continue to use the old version, even if there's a newer version that's out, and eventually you can kind of deprecate that. And so that's a good path. But if you release your API without that slash V1 in the front, then you are kind of committing yourself to either supporting those original calls that you thought were what your customers wanted, or you're committed to breaking your customers in the future. Yeah, pick one. Yeah, and I think what you said, adding the V1, uh, V2, V3, whatever, is the about the only real good way to go with public APIs. Because, I, I mean, even even Elasticsearch, I don't know that we talked about it back when we did the episode on it. They even recommend, don't if you're populating an index called customers, right, don't expose that to anybody. You create an alias for that thing called... Um, customers underscore V one. And then if you ever want to change it, right. Like then, then you can, you can do these things later on. Right. Like 
because just what you said, you don't want to break that contract and you don't want to be tied into the same code that you wrote five years ago and, and you can never move away from it. I think uh, something like Windows API is famous for supporting things for a long time. So they, they, you know, for especially back in the 90 days, 98, 95, whatever, they were kind of famous for supporting older commands and you know, even just for single applications. And that's rough. And even some of the tooling that they would release for new versions of stuff would come with tools that would automatically go out and update your code or update your binaries to the new APIs, which is a lot of work for them to do because they didn't have a good answer to that evolution problem at the time. You know, that's just how it was. Uh, so documentation, we touched on that already. I want to mention that there's different levels that you need to write for based on your audience. So, for example, like if you're looking at like a node module, uh, the text that you get on there, you know, the couple hundred words that maybe you get on that page should be oriented towards people that have never used the service before. And they're trying to decide which library to use. And so you want to make it look as simple as possible and show them how to do the simplest tasks that they're probably there to do. Now, the documentation that you have maybe on your website uh, can be much more in depth and have to do with like each individual argument. What, you know, maybe this subtle nuances and what those arguments mean and why you might want to use one over another. That's a, a whole nother layer. And that's not the stuff that you want to throw at someone who's never used your library before. So you need to be able to kind of have places that people can find for the level of their involvement. You know, whether they're casual, just getting started, or they're ready to get into the weeds. And that's that's hard. So we're really talking about three different layers, though, right? Like there's the about, what is this thing? There's the quick start, which is kind of like what I like to call it. Like if you get onto a good GitHub readme page for, for an API. And then there's the reference. And th- those are kind of the three pieces of documentation that I'm always expecting if I'm actually going to sink any time into using an API. Yep. And depending on the maturity of the API, I'm sure you've seen ones where it's got, you know, one or the other, like more frequently, it's probably more likely to have one that's got a real simple example of what you do. And then as soon as you go off the path, you're like, okay, well, this doesn't do what I need to. It's like, well, maybe it's embedded in one of these 1100 arguments that you can kind of pass. And then you you change one source code. Yeah. Yeah. And it conflicts with another. And then, yeah. What'd you Uh, say outlaw? I said, looking at you, Kotlin. Oh, true. I mean, it was uh, like, like you were talking about the, the documentation and it did make me think though, that like going from like one extreme to the next, like, you know, the Kotlin documentation is, is light, but then you get into like some of the Python documentation for some libraries. Like <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm, I don't remember off the top of my head, maybe like a, um, a pandas library, maybe that, or, or a numpy library or something that was like super like the extreme opposite where you're like, whoa, there's too much. There's like so much on this page. Like, you know, you're scrolling, 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 scrolling. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. I'm suddenly I'm reading about another function. I didn't even realize I like went to another function yet. You know, like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's almost too much in some places. Yeah. Yeah, don't even times we're like, I just need to know how to cancel an order. Like, <laughs> well, canceling an order can be very difficult because there's different states and maybe some items have shipped. And I'm like, no, no, just like I just need to cancel order. It's like nothing's shipped yet. Let me just see the most. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, and so you end up like reading, reading, reading all over the place, and yeah. And so at the end of the day, you know, you find the one, uh, the one argument that you needed to pass that does the thing you wanted, but it's just frustrating. Yeah, just change the verb to delete. Right. Yeah. 
done. <laughs> <laughs> so um, here's one I found. So um, to prep for this episode, we went and found a couple of links for different uh, for different um, places, like advising kind of how to write good APIs. And one I thought was interesting that came from uh, Microsoft, actually, was platform independence. And what they meant by that was trying to stay away from uh, the specifics of the platforms that you expect to deal with. So, for example, you know, we mentioned if you're like Elastic and you've got uh, the Python API and they are, you've got a Python module that, you know, you, people can go out and install and interact. Um, they don't, their Microsoft is advising you not to build the specifics of that implementation detail into the greater platform. It says basically you should keep your service as pure as possible and push any sort of details and try to keep as much as you can in those clients that are things that are specific to those platforms only. I like that. So like you shouldn't like, you know, Elastic doesn't want to maintain a Python 2.7 uh, version of their API or their server API and a Python 3 version of the API. They just want to have like, for example, a REST API and then, you know, have, uh, have the Python libraries be responsible for doing that. Or if, let's say um, I know Python, or sorry, not Python, uh, Elastic has different ways of communicating. So the most common one you think about is the REST API, but they do stuff with like gRPC, I believe, uh, internally as well. And I think that it can kind of, the nodes can communicate with each other and do things via gRPC. Um, but the actual APIs, the calls that those GR, gRPC commands are making don't want to know anything about gRPC because if something better comes along next year, then they don't want to have all this stuff kind of tied in. Yeah, that makes sense. Sorry, that was interesting. Uh, so now we're on to the fun stuff. So I Googled, you know, API design. I Googled how to write APIs. I wrote, uh, Googled a bunch of different things. And OMG, everyone, every article on like the first 10 pages of Google is assuming you're talking about REST APIs. Mm-hmm. Most of them don't even talk as if there's anything else. Until you get down to the third paragraph and you realize, like, hey, we're talking about verbs again. Dang it. Dang it, y'all. <laughs> I thought you were talking about other kinds of APIs, but you weren't. You got me. And so I want to talk a little bit about why REST in particular is kind of taking over that term and becoming synonymous. And uh, I came up with a couple things that I think why kind of why that's term is kind of combining a little bit and i thought there might be a couple things that we could even take away from rest and use in other areas because rest is so popular and people talking about rest is so popular and part of that is just because it's really popular (laughs) so the reason why people are talking about rest api design is because there are bazillions of developers who are working with rest apis and writing rest apis there are far less people working with uh, SMTP, for example, or uh, I would say, you know, OData works, you know, it's uh, it's got some carryover with uh, with REST, but it's much more niche. Or really the reason why you would say that REST is so popular, though, is because it is uh, so why it communication over the Internet is so widespread. It doesn't have to just be about your website. It could be your uh, iOS, your mobile app and your mobile app might want to make a call back to uh, some server to like log a statistic or, uh, you know, get a user's, you know, high score or something like that. So it, that's why it's so popular because it's not, it's become so ubiquitous and so uh, 
like like the glue that's holding so much stuff together, you know? It's a low friction standard, right? Like as opposed to soap back in the day with all its wrappers and XML and all that garbage, these things are pretty lightweight and uh, lightweight in terms of use. Uh, maybe not implementing, but the use of them is way easier than a lot of the alternatives that we dealt with for years and years, I think is really what it boils down to. And now you have like a native. What? Say what? This is like it's native to the internet. You know, it deals with these URIs, these uniform resource, uh, you know, whatever locations, uh, URLs, uh, that are, it's just meant to be used over the internet. So it's great for communicating with things over the internet. And it works pretty well for local too. Yeah. Hey, th- and you real have, quick. I, sorry, just to like finish that thought. Like you also have it as like a first class citizen in some libraries. Like if you're in Groovy and you're like, hey, I need a REST client, new REST client, like literally cool. new. Space REST client. Boom. I got a REST client. Yeah. So pop quiz, either one of you know what REST stands for without looking it up, sirs with computers? I think so. so. (laughs) Is it a representational stateless transfer or state transfer? State transfer. Very good. Very good. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. Yeah, Yeah, me too. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. And uh, we could easily do three episodes just on like what rest is and what rest isn't, and <laughs> give it a rest. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, the thing is, uh, people, uh, like it's funny. It's like my first kind of thought was like, well, rest is really popular because it's so easy to use. And then you start looking at people's best practices, and I, you know, it'd be like we found one list here uh, at API checklist, and every single item on this checklist was like a yeah, you should do that kind of thing that I looked at. It's forty three items. It deals with what kind of status, uh, um, status, what you call it, um, return codes return you use code. for various problems. Like if the thing is unauthorized or if the resource wasn't found or if it's a legit error on your part or if it's an error on the arguments passed. Like there's a whole world of best practices that should be <laughs> kind of taken into account. You don't you get away with it, but then, you know, the, the definition of, uh, what it's restful is kind of uh, it's a, its own contentious kind of controversial thing because of how it started and how people kind of use it day to day. And so I didn't want to go too deep on there just because we're really trying to focus more on APIs in general. But you just can't talk about APIs without talking about the elephant in the room. I mean, how many of these 43 do you do? Oh, not enough of them. Right. But, uh, some of them are just kind of normal it's like hey you use verbs like get head put delete and make them in uh, item potent like i'm just so used to doing that like that's how i kind of think about it when i'm not doing stupid stuff uh authentication most apis should be authenticated you know like some of them are like just kind of obvious like that um the things like uh unauthenticated authenticated stuff like i get that from my framework so if i'm dealing with if i'm writing you know flask or, or you know something like that then uh, it's going to take care of a lot of that stuff for me. Like I'm relying on the frameworks to, to handle it. We mentioned versioning. If I'm going to be communicating with other people that I care about, I'm going to be doing a version. If I, if I can't guarantee that's not going to be rolled out to the clients. So the real answer is that you don't think about these. Like, well, yeah, cause a lot right. of these, mm-hmm. the answer was, well, I'm assuming that my framework's going to handle it or well, the framework. Handle, I don't even think just, about that one. I just, it's something I, I, I just do. You know, yeah. I'm going to make it item potent. So really the answer is like, there's 43 on here. We don't think about them. We yeah. do. We have, well, a link. we do have this link. So the thing is, I think the key is 
you should probably read the list to at least be aware of them, right? Like we're not going to go through all 40, 43 of them, but you should be aware of them because even if you're not thinking about them, a lot of times you're not thinking about it because you don't know about it. If you're not thinking about it because you do know about it, and you know, your framework handles it fine, right? Like that's, that's good, but you don't want to be blatantly missing something like <coughs> the versioning is a perfect example. If this is something you want to be long lived, you should probably consider that. Yep. Uh, have you ever hit the URL link limit? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Which is it's why you change everything to a post and you abandon rest like on day three. Yep. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. So, you know, the canonical URLs, there's definitely stuff in here that there's stuff I have, like, I've thought about at certain times, but not at the co- uh, cores is another example of something. Um, I, uh, I think about it too much and, uh, I still suck at it. I still, I just don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> the cross origin stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All that stuff and different kinds of attacks and stuff. And so, you know, there, there is a lot to know. And like, even um, I'm sure we've all um, gotten API results uh, that were 200 and then had an error message, mm-hmm. you know, which is not uh, considered best practice. So there's a bunch of stuff like that, that you should know if you're writing APIs. Um, but then so many APIs do things differently that you <laughs> got to be careful about your assumptions, you know? Uh, so yeah, and uh, so I just wanted to kind of say like rest isn't really that simple, you know. No, it's not. Uh, so it, I want to mention. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say it's just too easy to gloss over things. Yeah, even that status thing. Like I, I've seen that happen so 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 many times. Like oh, I, I sent you back an empty array, but it was really you. You, you sent me some bad parameters. Like that's not legit. <laughs> You're supposed to send back an error saying you gave me bad input. So yeah, I, it's too easy to overlook a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so some things that I mentioned here are great by design of rest. So uh, one protocol to support, basically you're talking about going over HTTP, you know, HTTPS, of course, same, same basic principle, you know, it's, that's it. That's what rest is. Um, so that's pretty cool that you don't even have to worry about it. You know, you just use your whatever library and whatever language and, uh, it's responsible for taking care of shooting that thing, uh, over through space over to the other side of the planet and you don't even care. It just happens for you. Uh, verb orientation, which I mean, uh, you have things like git, post, put, patch, delete. We didn't really talk much about how, uh, rest is really designed, but those are basically the different kind of methods that you pass in order to deal with stuff. So, um, it's resource oriented by convention. So you might say I have a customer API, but the verbs that we pass from our clients are get like get my customer or uh, put add a customer patch is like update. Uh, and so it's pretty cool that it's got these kind of crud operations baked in. And there's a bunch of other ones that are uh, less common and like outlaw mentioned, uh, <laughs> not always possible. So, uh, that's kind of awkward. And you can actually do custom verbs too, although no one does. And I would, uh, I beg you not to do that. <laughs> like, honestly, when have you ever used a patch to do an update? If I'm working with like you know, something that requires it, which is very rarely, what's the, um, I'm talking about, I'm talking about, no, 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 I mean, like you're not using somebody else's. I'm talking about Rolling you are writing the API. Oh, and no. it's an uh, you want to do an action to like update a customer profile or something like that. I'm not doing that. Everything I do is post. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like that that that's what it ends up being defaulting to. It's like you know, if it's a simple Git thing, normally it's like if I want the URL to be shareable, 
right? Or, or you know, uh, you might be able to like you know open it up in a new tab or something like that. Then Git are very convenient for that because that's going to be the default of your address bar, right? Is is a Git, but Post, you know, for anything that you want to like update or write or whatever back to the server, like it feels like that's just the defaults. Like everybody defaults to the like. You know, it's, it's basically like everybody has this like silent agreement. Like, okay, I know that there's, I sh- listen, I know that there's patch and delete and put, let's just agree to just use Git and post. Okay. That's, that's enough. That's right. right. That's yep. right. And it's kind of totally. the way it works out. You're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> totally. Um, so I've gotten I my hand slapped for using some of these other verbs before. Yeah. This smacked hard. uh open standards so i mean there there was a you know a big council that met some point in time and and kind of decided what the standards were going to be and they laid it all out and everyone agreed on it and so um the c plus plus library does it the same way that chrome does in the browser does it the same way the postman does and this stuff just works cross clients and uh what that means is these companies and these organizations were free to build up these really big advanced tools like things like swagger we mentioned earlier which is a great user interface that will work for any rest api and it's going to do a really bang up job and it doesn't matter what kind of weird stuff you did as long as you kind of set that thing up right and <laughs> make your stuff discover with the underlying language it's going to work out really great so that's really great and it's kind of baked in uh to the protocol essentially uh, and I want to mention some things are great by convention, which means there's nothing forcing you to do this. Like you, you have to pass a method when you're calling or resting. You have to, you know, if it's always get or always post, you have to pass it. You have to send it over HTTP. You don't have to orient around resources, but that's best practice. So we said, uh, you know, customers, we talked about orders. Those are places where you would want to have an API where the, the URL is slash orders or slash customers or something like that. And it makes it really easy to discover. It works really well when we start talking about like Hattie OS, which we didn't get into, which is like really strict way of doing um, this kind of like discoverable cool kind of rest where you can kind of link and browse and navigate between resources in a really cool way. That's really strict and nobody does it. I'm sorry. I don't think I've ever seen it done. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so either. You know, I've, I've heard rumors of it. I think I, I think once uh, I on the show, I actually said no one does how do you ask? And then I got like five emails of like five examples where it was done. Uh, <laughs> so, if, you know, say, send me a comment. I'll read them again. And this time I'll remember, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, human readable is really nice. So um, Jason uh, is part of the standard. Um you don't have to do it that way. You can do other stuff. You know, actually, let me double check this. I, um, this is one of the things, uh, sorry, I had it under the convention standard. So Jason is what everyone's using. It doesn't have to be. And I'm sure you've probably seen APIs where you would just pass a string in the body or something like that, or you do stuff in the, the query parameters. So there are other ways to pass arguments, but for the most part, people do JSON and that JSON works out really well as a human because I can look at logs and see what went in or I can replay things or I can work with tools like Postman and really easily and kind of see uh, what, what that's like. When we talked about Avro earlier, which is a binary format, not so human friendly, right? Uh, protocol buffers. That's uh, used commonly with the GRPC, maybe, maybe always, but uh you can't read it as a human. You need a, a tool and a schema to tell you how to, to parse that. And that's a, that's a pain in the butt. And somebody's going to say like, yeah, but you could like return back 
or, or send or return XML back. And then in that case, you're using soap. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> no, pretty, just kidding. Pretty you're not there. Yeah. You're there's some other stuff along with soap, soap that gets, it does right. feel gross. Like you sh- like that. It goes back to like, okay, I guess it's, it's like, Technically, I can read the letters, but it's it's not as easy to read. It's it's so verbose and gross that it like gets in your face and you can't read it. Yep, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. Soap is a whole other can of worms here, and luckily, uh, we don't have to think about them too much. Uh, statelessness. So this is another one of those things where like uh, representational state transfer. So the the original design and uh, intent for REST was for things to be stateless, meaning that uh, you what's a good way of saying this? Um, the, the call could happen on any number of servers. It's going to do its thing. The operation is going to be atomic. There's no sort of carryover in practice. This is the kind of thing that does not happen all the time. So you'll see a lot of times where an API will have like a login method and then you can do stuff. And when you're done, you either say log out or if, uh, you get timed out, your token times out, you might say re-authenticate. And so this is an example where that's stateful means there's some server out there that knows who you are, knows what you're doing, knows where you are in the process. And that's really important sometimes because sometimes things you need to do are, are stateful. If you're working with the bank, you know, you need to make sure the money's there before you do it. You may need to put a lock on the account before you withdraw the money and then unlock the account. So other transactions can take place, you know, things like that. Those are all stateful type things. And sometimes you need to do stuff like that. So if you're buying uh, tickets for a concert and you're picking out your, remember we had those, you picking out your seats it's important that some of those operations be stateful and it's okay to want to do those over rest. That we're talking pre 2020, right? Yeah. yeah pre 2020 back in the day. Yeah. And yeah, we mentioned how OS, which is, uh, you know, really nice. And one thing that's nice about that is it really pushed, uh, sending resource links back. So you would say, Hey, uh, slash orders, get me my orders and how say, okay, here, uh, here are links to your orders and you can kind of click in or, you know, use these links to retrieve more information about this and you could drill in and maybe there's a customer link and maybe there's an order link or an address link or a product link or a shopping cart link. And then the shopping cart link has links to the products and the products have links to the pictures and it's links, 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 links. So it makes it uh, very easy to kind of crawl and navigate and it makes it really discoverable. And what's really cool about that is you can build these clients that are kind of dumb about, the the stuff that they're interacting with, but they can kind of just crawl out and find the things they need. And it means if things move, if resources move servers, it doesn't matter because they're always just getting these links back and then it goes and fetches the next piece of data from those links. So there's some really cool advantages there, but unfortunately it's just really complicated and hard to do right. Don't at me. We just can't have nice things. <laughs> That's really the takeaway from all of this. Totally. So here is my sales pitch. You know, I always like to, uh, have something, some crazy thing. I'm kind of trying to push some agenda, some secret agenda. What Docker if, is the new get? We <laughs> yes. all agree. Totally. Little D Docker is the new get. Uh, so maybe there's some really good ideas from rest, some things, some patterns that have fallen out over the last couple of years that have fallen out and become standard because they're just really good. And we've seen some things like the resource orientation that has leaked out of REST into command line tools. Like we talked about the Kubernetes API being resource and verb heavy. 
uh, PowerShell was uh, the first time I saw something that really had this kind of noun verb thing that was really strongly enforced. Maybe it's not the first thing, but it's up there. We talked about the GitHub CLI tool. PowerShell? If Git came out today. It? Yeah, like, PowerShell has um, examples when you said that. I'm like, every yeah. commandlet is verb dash noun. Oh, okay. Git dash content. Git dash item. Yeah. See, I was considering that one thing, but okay, fine. Well, yeah, and I always use the aliases, so I kind of forget about it. But uh, every single commandlet is always uh, set up like that. Okay. You kind of pipe things together, and it, it just has to deal with it, kind of how it navigates. And so uh, it's just really interesting to see that that um, those ideas have kind of filtered out. And verbs are just built into REST. So it has to be that way. You have to have the verbs. But in practice, it seems like it works out pretty well. Sure, there's other things you want to do, and Kubernetes is a prime example where – um, you can scale deployments, but you can't scale pods. For example, uh, you can, uh, describe resources. Uh, you know, we use Kafka connect a lot. We talk about Kafka stuff a lot. You can pause connectors or you can start connectors and do these things. And the, the API is set up to let you plug in your own nouns and verbs, but you have to do it with nouns and verbs. You can't give it sentences of stuff to do. So I'm thinking, what if we could just steal some of the best ideas from rest and use them in our other APIs. So if we're building command line tools, maybe if we kind of borrow this resource verb kind of setup, it makes for really good experiences that people are used to. Maybe if we're building uh, like software libraries or modules or NPM packages or you know, pip, pip modules, whatever. Maybe if we kind of write things in this way, it makes it just easier for people to use because it seems like this pattern is popular because it works. So got a couple notes on that. So if you organize your API around the resources and your behaviors or your actions are the verbs. So instead of having a class with a method like create order, maybe you have an order with a class called, or sorry, uh, you have a, a method, a method called create. And that just kind of seems like good OO design to me, doesn't it? I like it. Yeah. So now, you know, if you start looking at, you know, OO is one of those kind of like loaded terms where maybe, well, you really should go through your object factory and, you know, whatever, and, and kind of have that call create and whatever. So, it, you know, it gets complicated and uh, down in the weeds. But as a user, I had, I've never been happy about seeing a factory. I've never been happy about seeing a builder. If there's a mediator, you know, get out of here, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, even events is kind of clunky, but if you tell me there's an order object and it's got a create method on it, I I know what to do with that. So maybe that's a, a cool way of setting things up if you can. And, um, so what you're is, advocating for like in your object oriented world that you would have all of that functionality in the class itself. Yeah. So class so, order method create. So now, yeah. so now that class becomes rather complex because it has all of that functionality along for the ride. Whereas if you take the string builder thing, then the output is the string, which is a simple, you know, data type. Yeah. So but, this is not a hard and fast rule, okay. but what you're saying is uh, you're totally right. And uh, obviously, if you have like an order object that knows how to create itself in a database or how to save itself in a database or delete itself from a database, like 
ooh, that's very much getting away from a single purpose of representing the data. But what I'm saying is if you're making a public API or you're making an API for other developers, why don't you hide all that complexity, hide the services, hide the DAOs, hide the data classes, and try to create them the most simple API that's oriented around the resources with that ubiquitous language, those bounded contexts, uh, you know, all the things we talked about with uh, triple D design uh, or with um, design driven development uh, to, to make it so that they can interact with your code in the way they think about things. Cause they think about canceling orders. They think about creating orders. They don't think about order services. I mean, I think another way that I would like to think about this, at least in my head though, is that this, this pattern of command, uh, verb noun, you know, like it, it's, um, it's leaked into a lot of, a lot of popular tools and, you know, we've all become fans of, right? So, you know, we're mentioning Kubernetes. Uh, you know, kube cuddle is one of them, but there's really more like even NPM, for example, does the same kind of thing, right? Like NPM run test or, or run, run build or whatever, like depending on like how you have your thing configured, right? Um, that, that quote noun is going to be something that you configured. Um, so I, I mean, I kind of like that approach because then you could think about like this quote, like API doesn't necessarily have to be you know, a web, something that you're going to do with the web. Right. Right. And so we, we talked about some command line tools. Um, Oh crap. I just forgot what I was thinking about. Um, uh, Oh, I was thinking Docker. So like there's like Docker, you can do Docker, uh, images LS or, you know, there's other ways to do it. Like, uh, if Docker came out 20 years ago, maybe they would only have those little aliases they have now. Like you can do like Docker RMI to remove an image, for example, maybe they only would have had Docker RMI and who's Googling for Docker RMI when they remove, want to remove an image. Right. But they set up as a shortcut, but that's how things were designed. Like 20 years ago, you know, you kind of had to, <laughs> to learn their language in order to learn their tool. And people were expected to spend more time up front learning. But nowadays you're kind of expected to be able to Google your way through something as quickly as possible. And so that's why Docker, I, I think has uh, a more standard way of doing things. They've got the shortcuts there for the power users, but you can also do Docker image remove. I think Docker image RM and Docker or images yeah. list. Like I don't think I'd ever thought about it from the searchable standpoint, but that makes a ton of sense. Like, yeah, uh, never even occurred to me. Yeah. Uh, Helm's a tool. I've been thinking a little, a little bit, a lot, um, a little bit lately. So, uh, I do not like Helm's, tem- uh, Helm's like language, the way their, their command line tool. And, and maybe I just haven't spent enough time with it. I'm not trying to diss it. I'm just saying it's been frustrating because I'll do stuff like, I just want to see like the rendered templates that are installed somewhere. I still, it's like Helm show something. I forget, I forget how to do that. Like, but it's there. Helm knows about it. It knows how to get it. I just don't know how to whatever. Or Helm hey, man, upgrade you were, dash dash dry run. Yeah. Yeah. There's just been stuff on what was the thing I was uh, trying to search for something. I was like, okay, I know the chart. So, you know, here's the URL for the charts. You go there in a browser. It looks different. It's a web page because that's like index.html. It's meant for humans. And uh, your your Helm, your your computer interacts with index.yaml, which is this kind of hidden page that it knows about, like your command line tool, but it's kind of hidden from you normally. And so, you know, I figured it out. It's like, fine. Okay, so there's index.yaml. Well, what's, what's the name of the chart? 
because for some reason I was trying to do something. I couldn't figure out the name of the chart. And I just had a really hard time. And the way you're supposed to do it is you're supposed to first Helm add the repo. And then you do Helm search and then type your repo name. And then it searches all your repos for that one. And that seems goofy to me. It's like, no, I know it's in that repo. Second, I don't even want to add it. I want to pass the whole path. I don't really like the idea of adding this thing and then I have to remember to go remove it later because I'm trying to just get the URL for some other system. Why do I have to install this repo location to my local computer because I'm trying to look up something for somewhere else? But the prescribed way to do it is like, no, 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 just add it to your list and then search for it and make sure you get the one that's in the one you need it and then remove it after you're done. That's a really bad user experience, you know, in my opinion, and maybe just because I um, don't know a better way to do it. But that's an example of a tool where I would love if it was more resource enter uh, oriented, where I could just say Helm repo, give it a name list would have been fantastic there. The Helm, the, the Helm search repo bit me like, uh, and we, we talked about that back in episode, um, what was it? Episode one forty five, where uh, I'd specifically reference that because that that command is weird. Like it doesn't, it it wasn't what you thought it was. But then when, or it wasn't what I thought it was. And then when I realized what it was, I was like, oh, of course it's that way. Like, and now I don't even remember the case, the use case that I was running into at the time. But, um, yeah, I mean, like there there's there's a other like even. Um, you know, s- scaffold follows the same kind of, you know, uh, command, uh, verb kind of format. Um, you know, of course there's the granddaddy Git uh, does it to, you know, which uh, of course granddaddy, um, but even like other Linux commands, you know, a lot of lo- other, um, <clears throat> APT or, uh, apt Git, you know, was the same thing. Um, but you know, you're talking about like, some of those that make it like uh, difficult to do certain things. <laughs> like the one that came to mind for me, I don't know if you guys have ever tried this. It, like when you Docker login into a particular repository and then you're like, okay, I just want to see like a list of all the repositories that I'm authenticated to. What's the Docker command to just list those things? No, you cat the config file. And there isn't <laughs> one. There isn't one and catting the config file is going to be the answer that you're going to see. And that's not always going to give you the, what you want to see because depending on what your credential store is, you might not have anything listed in that file. Oh, interesting. Super frustrating. Yeah. Now, speaking of uh, <laughs> kind of frustrating experiences, you ever tried to uh, like app get install something before you do like an app get update? Oh man. All the time. It's like, why well, it doesn't seem like you should have to do that, but it's a, st- it's an example of like a stateful operation where you have to do something first before you do something else. Although you might not get the results you expect, even though that something else that you have to do seems unrelated. That's why like all the commands are always app update and, and app, get, uh, app <laughs> yes. install, blah, 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 blah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so uh, a couple other things to mention here. So we uh, we talked about nouns. Nouns can be complex. You know, we mentioned orders. Orders can have products, addresses, history, all sorts of stuff in there. Um, they don't have to be the tiniest little atomic units. You know, you can build up these abstractions and you build up this language. We're getting back into um, the DDD, um, which we had some episodes on that somewhere at some Main point. Domain-driven design. Domain-driven design. <laughs> yeah, I've got the book back there. 
Uh, <laughs> so collections, if you want to get more than one order, you can have a collection object, uh, which basically would have, you know, a bunch of rows. You, now you want to hide stuff, of course, from like if it's a da- database or something, maybe you want to kind of hide those details and have it not look like uh, rows from a database. You want to have it be those objects. And this is the thing I've been guilty of for a long time. Um, but, mm, we'll get there a little bit more in detail, but um, I'm, I have had and probably still have a bad habit of uh, like returning what's what I need for my view if I'm working on a website and not necessarily the objects. And uh, there are various reasons for that, but it's inconsistent and it's bad from a, a user experience. Luckily, in my case, I'm usually just harming myself. And so it's not a big deal. So you're saying like instead of instead of like whatever your view layer is, uh, instead of returning just the data for that view, you should just return back like maybe a generic object and then the view can decide how, what bits of that object it wants. Is that what you're describing? Yeah. And like a perfect Hattie OS, you know, by the book world, uh, you would return uh, basically <laughs> kind of these, uh, these roots of objects and you have links that you can go to fetch more information about those individual objects. So what I'm saying is like in kind of bad practice that I would normally do is I might have a, a, a rest quote unquote method named get orders for user. And I give it one user ID, one customer ID, and then I go get all the orders from it with the information I would need to display on it. So in one call, I'll pass in a customer, I'll get back an order and that order will contain maybe dates and the address of the person it was sent to and the count of products. And that's convenient for me because that's exactly what I need to display on my web page. But what I'm saying is that's bad from an API standpoint because it's very purpose built. And if you need to have any uh, deviance from that, like maybe you need the product images or maybe you don't care about the addresses, in which case I'm returning too much information. Then you have to make a choice of basically whether to try and build your own APIs or find some other APIs that are more appropriate or you need to go modify uh, what's there, or you just have to deal with getting back more information or you have to make more calls. So what I'm saying is in good API design, that would be more granular. So you would be more specific about what you're fetching, but it's more work. Well, that's why I was asking, like if you were talking about like uh, more returning back, like a generic object, like, um, you know, like maybe you want to display a list of usernames, you know, first name, last name, and their account name. And were you describing like, oh, in that case, instead of just returning back uh, an, or a list of those three columns, instead you would return back the full user object. And then uh, and in my mind, I was thinking like, that sounds awful because now you have these like giant payloads, which would go against everything that GraphQL is trying to solve, you know, yep. <laughs> where it's trying to like go the, the extreme and just get you exactly the, the you know, the, the bits of data that you want and nothing yep. more. Yeah, so I actually had a couple of questions here. I was going to uh, ask y'all at the end here and uh, we're kind of hit on them. So one was like, why wouldn't you just return the whole objects? And it's because it's really inefficient. A lot of times there's, um, you don't care about most of the information you have uh, about the entities. You only care about the, you know, very light uh, information, like maybe the status and the name or something like that, or maybe a uh, location to do a picture. And how do you OS, well, you know, strictly speaking by the book, you would say, get me the users, maybe have some sort of, you know, search that would be fine where you pass the, uh, no, that's not true. I guess I would say 
get me the customer customer and maybe would have links to my orders because there's a relationship there. And then I would go to that link for the orders and that order would have links to each individual order and each individual order have links to the products, which I could use to. And so, I mean, you're making tons of calls at that point, which would be yeah. terribly inefficient. But the big difference is right. Like the, in Hattie OS, the, the smarts are on the server that's returning you the data as to where you go get it, right? Like in your typical client, you say, all right, go get me the customer information. All right, now I have the customer ID. Now go get me the order information. Now I have the order IDs. Now go give me the order details from the order IDs, right? The big difference is instead of the client having the smarts on knowing where to go ask for the next bit of data, the server just gives you and says, yo, if you want the order details, take this link. Right. And and that's really it's flipping the responsibility of how to get to the data. And, mm-hmm. and it is it's way more difficult from that other perspective, I think. Yeah. And that's why Hadios is not popular. Yeah, because now you've got to keep. I mean, we've talked about this in the past, but without going too deep down it, if, if you maintain a product database and and one of your products is no longer a product you carry. What do you do? Do you kill that link? You kill that link. Anybody that bookmarked it, it's going to fail. So now you've got to keep links that will work for your new links. <laughs> it, it, it just becomes a bit of a mess. Whereas if the client just knows how to navigate your APIs, then it makes things easier. So, yeah. Yup. Absolutely. So, um, and then we kind of touched on like, why would you want to use purpose built APIs, which is kind of like what I've been kind of arguing is like bad design, uh, you, cause it's not resource oriented. It's not verb oriented. It's basically like a sentence. It's a very specific action, it's super convenient. And by, uh, the Hadios approach where you kind of like go get resource and you go spider out and get more resources, uh, databases are really good at that already. You know, so it's like we're re-implementing a database on uh, <laughs> via HTTP. No, thanks. Right. It sounds like a terrible idea. And so uh, that's where something like purpose built stuff comes in. So uh, maybe you want to toss it to a store procedure, which is also debatable. You know, there's all sorts of stuff you can do in name of performance. So I think that the, the most reason, uh, the biggest reason why you would want purpose built APIs that are very specific to your needs is just for performance reasons. Or lazy. Uh, yeah, lazy. lazy absolutely. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's lazy. Uh, so uh, another one to mention is consistent naming. Uh, because of the resources and now things, you kind of get that for free if you're doing things the normal way. Uh, and so, you know, it's kind of nice that all your gits are gits. Uh, typically, uh, all your posts are kind of closely associated with posts if you're using a, a good API. I mean, that's something we can take away for when we're building other things. Like maybe... Um, Maybe we should have methods for get ID, get name, get whatever, rather than having properties, because it's very easy from a customer standpoint to say get and see everything that they can get back. I hate that, but something to consider if you're trying to make things easy. You know, it's very clear as to what's happening. Coop cuddle, get pods. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it feels great. It's annoying when you type it. You know what is always bothering me is um you get pods, you get services, you don't get logs. Right. I know that drives yeah. me crazy. I've typed that a million times. And even then it's like okay, say, okay, fine, I'll get logs, I'll give it the pod name, and that works ninety percent of the time. Unless you got two containers or more containers mm-hmm. and it's like then you gotta specify it. So yeah. 
that's those like those little rough edges that are really frustrating, but it makes you realize just how unfrustrating the rest of it is. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so Microsoft, uh, we've got a bunch of resources, by the way, for this. Uh, they recommend plural nouns in most cases. But again, they're skewing heavily towards rest. And Microsoft was actually the page I found that was the most unfocused on rest. But this is a case where they, uh, all their examples were basically, you know, saying slash orders or slash customers with a number rather than slash order or slash customer. So that was like, kind of interesting. That just reads weird. Yeah. Yep. Especially, uh, so you think about PowerShell, um, git dash host, git dash content. It's not git hosts, it's not git contents. But that's also cases where there's only one of the things. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, in their particular case, though, I could I could make the case for why they would do that, why they would do it that way. Because if you like they had slash orders and slash orders one, two, three and slash orders one, two, three status or something like that. But where it was like, OK, you could make the argument that slash orders would just take you to all you know, it would take you to a list. And so that, yep. that would need to be plural. And so now it'd be weird if you wanted to drill to a specific want specific order. If you had another route that was singular slash order slash, you know, one, two, three. So if that's where they're going, but also, I don't know. I mean, like routes are cheap, so who cares? Well, yeah. routes complicate your client, right? That's the problem. If, if you're dealing with an order client, yeah, if you're dealing with a with a, an orders entity, we'll call it, you don't you don't want to have to know whether you're dealing with one or more, or whether I need to call order or orders, or you know, it just it gets complicated, or more complicated than what's necessary. Really, is what it is. I guess what I'm saying though is that like more often than not, you know. Uh, I'm probably thinking like maybe something too specific, but I'm thinking like, Hey, if I have an e-commerce site and you know, cause we're talking orders here. So if I have, then I'm probably going to have more often than not a lot of things that are going to be done against a specific order. So slash order slash ID. Right. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. Cause I'm going to have a bunch of things on it, but slash orders I'm probably not going to do, I'm not probably not going to let the customer do a whole lot, you know, view them, but they're not going to, I'm not going to let them bulk cancel orders. They're going to go into a specific order. So I don't know. I mean, if you got to pick one, I get, I get part of their reason for it, but I don't know that I'm too much of a fan for it. And if you didn't, I guess my point is, is like, if you had a slash orders and a slash order one, two, three, I'm not going to be mad about it. I will. <laughs> so I'll tell you why I like uh, the, the plural, at least. Um, so working with Kafka, like say the schema registry, which uh, as much as I like it, they've got uh, some custom terms that are kind of frustrating. So you go slash subjects and it lists all your subjects for all your schemas. And then from there, you might pick one. So copy it out of the, the array string, paste it up in the URLs. And now you're saying, okay, get me the subjects. And you pass the thing and then you get a list of uh, all your sub uh, or sorry, you get a list of that subject and all its versions. And then you take the version number and you copy it and you do another slash. And so what, um, what it feels like is I'm drilling in, like I started right. the subjects. I got the one I want. I found the version. I got the one I want. 
and I went and past pasted it. And so I, at every t- every point, I just added a slash and added more information. And I got further and further. And then I can go in there and say slash, you know, cancel or delete or whatever. Um, pass why oh, you don't do slash delete, but uh, you can do some some extra stuff there. But it just feels like you're drilling in, which just feels good uh, as a human and as a programmer because it's very obvious is what you're doing after you get used to the weird terminology. Yeah, I like yeah, that. You're I, following the path. I get, I get that, and that's why I was saying like uh, you know with this one specific example that was you know kind of commerce driven, then it you know. Totally. That's why I was like, uh, I don't, in that case, I don't know that I care, but you know, other cases, yeah, fine, whatever. I'm not going to take the, the hard line stance either way, though. I guess my point, like, you know, on a case by case basis, I would, you know, depending on what your applications purposes and whatnot, then, you know, do what makes sense for your need. And I'm fine with either way. It's just kind of nice to have a preference, you know, from Microsoft. So you can say, like, if you're designing a new API today and you're like, ooh, should it be uh, person or people, <laughs> you know, then, hey, there's a vote for people. You know, that's a terrible example. But now you know. Would also, I mean, like, what, where this also <laughs> uh, reminds me of is, like, table names. And I think we've talked about mm-hmm. this in the past. Like, should your table names be singular or plural? Is like it a plural. table of users or is it a table of user? Of user objects, right? Yeah. I, I get both arguments. I've always liked the plural better. Definitely Just for tables, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Just don't mix. Yeah, don't mix. Oh, All for right. the love of yeah, God, do not mix. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, general guidance is return. Uh, whole resources rather than, uh, or rather, uh, resource identifiers rather than whole objects. Um, I don't know how I feel about that, applying that to other, uh, other APIs, you know, um, the only thing works really well on the web because it's like, you already know, you know, what the next call is and how they're going to do it. So I think that is kind of unique. So I think that's a kind of example where we would probably not want to, uh, take a note there from rest. Uh, so a couple other, um, some pieces of guidance here that uh, we might want to steal from rest. Like, it looks like I kind of got my notes mixed up here a little bit, but uh, basically avoid uh, introducing dependencies between the API and underlying storage. So that's an example there where like you might be tempted to return a data table from a rest API and C sharp data table is like a, an object that's closely related to like the output you would get from a, like a database, for example. Uh, and so that's something that you wouldn't want to do because I mean, you're going to get back rows and columns. And so, it's convenient to do that for the server side program and the 30 minutes that they save converting that to something more generic, but uh, it's, it's just got stuff that doesn't make sense to the client. So it'd be better to kind of keep that more pure and hide that abstraction. Uh, verb orientation is okay. in some, um, uh, so this, in this case, Microsoft talked about a very specific kind of API and I thought this was interesting because depending on what your library or whatever you're doing is, this might be something to consider uh, where we talked about things being resource oriented and saying that's generally pretty good. And it seems to work really well. In most cases, there is a case where you want verb orientation. And uh, the example they gave was a calculator. So if you have a calculator object, I want to see methods like add a take number one, and number two, I want to see divide. I want to see, you know, whatever, uh, absolute value. 
those are cases where there is no resource. I don't want to create a number object. Say calculator dot number, give it the number four dot add, give it another number. That's ugly. It feels bad. So this is kind of a unique case where if you've got something that uh, is very action-based, you might just want to skip the nouns. Now I want to create a whole new API for you. Yeah. <laughs> go to slash four. Yeah. You yeah. like that? You see a big number four. Now go to slash four slash add slash two. Yeah. <laughs> you ever seen those like post fix calculators or whatever? Like they have stuff like that. It's miserable. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that. No. Oh man. Yeah. You can get, so you're like, what are the different kinds? Like if you're talking about like computer science, it's like post fix, infix, prefix or whatever. And you're like, so you would do four, three plus if it's post fix and the computer would know, like it would, uh, it's, um, it's basically like a stack. So it pushes four on the stack, pushes three on the stack. It pushes plus, Ooh, that's an operator that tells us to pop the two off the stack and add them together. And now we push the result of that seven onto the stack and then keep on going. So it's a really efficient way of like doing say math, for example, where it kind of builds up as far as total aggression, but anyway, <laughs> it gives it, it gives it a way of kind of like accumulating stuff and kind of building along through complex expressions that are coming in, um, which works out really well for the computer. But as a human, you don't want to see like four, three plus open close minus sign two. brutal. You're like, what? Yeah, it's just tough to read. Uh, so yeah, that's about it. So um, you know, we kind of talked about uh, the other questions I had here. There's one other question which is kind of unrelated to everything else, but I just wanted to kind of ask it because I feel like it needs to be asked. Uh oh, what happened to GraphQL? I miss it. I know it seems like such a great idea. A couple years ago, it came out. We thought it was awesome. Then a couple more years later, it's like holy cow, this is really going to take off. People are using it. Companies are doing really great stuff with it. It feels great as a consumer. Couple years later, it's like, wait, where's this GraphQL future I was promised? Yeah, wait, wait, has it gone away though? I don't know that it has. I mean, I think what's changed is in the past year and a half, there's been no conferences or anything. Because I can tell you, every single, um, you know, conference or whatever that we go to, there were there were tons of people talking about GraphQL and how to make it better and how to make it work in your environment and do all that. And I just, I don't know. I just don't think we're ex- exposed to the outside world of dev as what we were, you know, a year and a half ago before the pandemic hit. Yeah. You, we talked about Sura. We talked about um, Gatsby and those like the kind of last two things. And uh, I saw bundling GraphQL making that a first grass citizen. DGraph was a graph database. We looked at it a little bit that uh, was built around GraphQL. That's several years out now, old now, and I, there have been APIs that I see coming out now that I'm interacting with. And you know, we mentioned like Rapid API. Rapid API doesn't have a big GraphQL banner on their web pages; they're not pushing it. So it makes me wonder. It's like, uh, do we miss the boat on that? Is was it just too hard to do on the server? Am I just not, you know, working on the front end as much now, so I'm not seeing it? But it really seems like I'm not seeing companies pushing GraphQL anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't really know the answer, but I can tell you this, at least from my perspective. In terms of everything we talked about on this, like with the rest thing, like the the orders, the customers, the, you know, the order details, all those separate rest services, those still make sense to build in that way. But as somebody that's building a client to go get that information and display, 
man, it really still, to me, makes a lot of sense to have a GraphQL wrapper around those existing REST services if you want to do it over the top of those. And, hey, I, hey, me, Mr. Client, I want customer first name, last name, and I want the total of the last five orders, right? Like, that's just so beautiful. Give me what I need and nothing more. I don't want anything else coming back. I want to tell you the graph of information I want. It, it still, to me, was such a a beautiful way of handling getting data and even even their actions, right? Like GraphQL did support verbs. So, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I, I hope we didn't miss the boat because, it, it to me, it was one of the more enlightening ways of thinking about APIs that I'd seen in years. So, <clears throat> um, I was curious. We got some data. And uh, uh, so I looked at, so here in the Atlanta area, one of the big conferences is Connect Tech. Yep. Um, and I was curious to see like, hey, w- you know, what were the recent uh, GraphQL talks? For the 2020 Connect Tech, which they did have, there was a talk on GraphQL. Really? One. The so then I'm like, before, there huh. were like 10 of them. I'm like, well, that's just Atlanta, right? So, you know, maybe Connect Tech isn't the best, uh, the best you know, way to measure that, right? Like maybe, I, maybe I should look at, uh, you know, something else. So then I'm like, okay, let's just go to straight JS Conf, right? Which, uh, you know, I don't have, I guess they didn't have one for uh, 2020, but in 2019, there was a talk on GraphQL. Really? For for uh, the US JS Conf. Man, so, that seems I don't know. crazy. Maybe it, um, maybe it, maybe it has past maybe it was proved to be you know too maybe it was ahead of its time and was too difficult to implement and so uh you know in 15 years we'll be like oh man there was this technology that we didn't even know how to use and now here it is because you know things like that happen yeah possibly so in 2019 the state of js uh had a survey about it and you know basically whether people were using it uh Maybe they changed their URLs, but it's not on 2020 or 2021. So I'm trying to search those to see if like, well, 2021 is obviously not going to be out yet, but uh, yeah, I'm having a hard time finding the same question on 2020. If I look at the 2019 stats, uh, it's, I mean, it's growing. So um, the the biggest one was uh, 50% said they have heard of it and they would like to learn. Uh, 5%, 2%. So we'll call it 60% have never used it. 2% said they've used it and would never do it again. And 38% they've used it and they would use it again. And it's, I mean, the chart, the graph going up from 2016 is moving up. Um, but it's not exactly exponential. So that was my kind of thing. I was like, I was Googling around. I was like, it seems like GraphQL is really has all the good stuff that we liked about kind of rest and it's also really consistent it's a great user experience and it's something that can be tacked on with a rest endpoint you know fairly easily so why why aren't we seeing this when people are talking about design maybe, maybe it's just because it's so easy to do i don't know man I, I don't know that's 
uh, kind of makes me sad. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Did they really not ask about it in 2020? Well, I mean, if I'm reading the 2020 state of JS right, like I, it is there, but oh. it's in the quadrant of have not used but positive opinions. Okay. And and like all of, all of, you know previous years it was too. Yeah. So it's it's gaining velocity and it it's close to crossing that line for the to get into the have used, but. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just a, a myth. Maybe GraphQL is a myth, and you know, really only Facebook is using it to any great degree. And other people are like, you know, might create some libraries for it, but you know, it's not really okay. a thing. I don't I, know. I found the um, I found where I, the same graph that I saw in 2019, and so uh, in 2019 they had uh, what did I say? 38.7 uh, percent would use again. In 2020, it went up to 44%. We'd use again. Um, interested went down from 50% to 43%. But, you know, some of those, it's just because they went up. Um, yeah, um, it's, it's just because we'll start using it. How many of those are Facebook employees? Oh, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> question. So it's going up, though. It just, the trajectory, if you look at the graph, uh, it's not as steep. So it kind of was going up really fast. And then, the growth rate slowed way down. So it's still going up. Just not, not steep. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, we'll see. Let us know. What you so, think. uh, I guess GraphQL is going to make it is the answer going back <laughs> to the yeah. question. That should, should have been the survey. And yeah, so we'll on see. that bombshell, uh, <laughs> we leave you with uh, a bunch of resources, uh, links to resources we like. And uh, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. And I hope we didn't do this one yet. Um, but I recently in the last couple weeks, we started running uh, Kubernetes in WSL2. Have we done this as a tip yet? Uh, I'm going to wait to see where you go with it. And then I'll tell you the episode number. Okay, <laughs> so uh, and uh, it's been going really great. Uh, I'm actually I've been using Minikube with it. Uh, you don't have to. You could just run it with Docker as Kubernetes built in. But uh, I've been happy with that. And uh, the trick there, I found out. And I feel like this part of the tip has been probably done. But uh, if you check out from GitHub or or you know whatever you're doing your Git clone from, you check out into the file system for WSL, then everything is so much faster and so much better. Just going to WSL2 and using that for, you know, Kubernetes uh, is a pretty big jump in improvement. It just runs better in WSL, specifically WSL2, than it does under WSL1. It runs better than it does on, on Windows. Yep. And if that you do your one, clone... That was episode 156. Okay, cool. So we got that one, one good. WSL2. So <laughs> then if you clone it with, you know, get into the virtual file system for... WSL2, meaning like you go to CD tilde, you know, your home directory in Linux, you get away from the C drive, your clone there, and then do your use your file system from there for Kubernetes. Then things are even so much faster still. That Wait, that's what I'm talking about. The last episode, yeah. Oh. <laughs> that was the previous episode. <laughs> okay, fine. Then Minikube is awesome. <laughs> Minikube versus Kubernetes. Surely that's not a good one. 
it was uh it, in all seriousness though there was i i did mention it and i shared the link there was a, a docker article of uh docker best practices it's specifically the title is docker desktop wsl2 best practices and i talked about how if you do co- if you do everything inside of your wsl file system then it would be faster and the cool thing is, is that WSL2 exposes a special network, network share. share that you can access it from Windows. So if you did have a need to use an editor, like a visual IDE, um, and, and you wanted to access that file system, you can. I think I got this from you. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> okay, fine. Then definitely, you definitely don't know this one. So once you do your clone, you do code dot, you know, it types, it, it opens Visual Studio Code. It will automatically detect that it's uh, a remote file system. And yeah. Dang yeah. it, it's installed a plugin for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually used that as the lead in because I said yeah. that you could do that. Jeez. But good, good that, tip, Joe. Which works fine for Visual Studio Code. If that's yeah. the, your visual editor, but if you wanted to use anything else, that's where that uh, special path comes into play. Yep. Okay. Well, did you know when you uh, use Minikube to start up your new uh, cluster, you can have multiple. So problem. You can name them. Uh, you can easily just pass dash dash CPUs and dash dash memory to easily specify the memory. And when you shut down that cluster and start it back up, you could even choose different numbers. There you go. There's your, t- that's a good one. I like that. <laughs> that one has much easier than Docker. <laughs> All right. So yeah, I mean, do that. Whatever I just said, just write it in <laughs> the notes so that we don't forget it. And then, yeah. uh, yeah, that, Definitely. that's your tip of the week. The other stuff good. was just a reminder of previous tips of the week. In you know, case you're new to the show, that was a great tip of the week. <laughs> you just got like four. You're welcome. <laughs> I didn't mean to snort so loud into the microphone. Oh, we do this so late at night, y'all. The, this pro- the, the, I think one of those is at least was during the day. The, the hilarious <laughs> bit about that though is that like, when you said when you said that, like I don't know if we talked about this, and I was like, "Don't worry, I'll, you say it, and I'll tell you uh, the episode number." Which episode? I was like in my mind, I was already like I'd already picked an episode number as a joke, oh. not expecting that it would literally be the, the previous last episode. <laughs> 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 <Damn>. <laughs> we promised he was there for it. <laughs> okay, well. um, yeah, so with that, uh, I will give my tip of the week that has not been said yet. Uh, or or maybe it has. It could be. I'm not going to. We'll see. I'm yeah. ready. You tell me. <laughs> you tell me. He's Jim. got his episode search. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, so uh, my uh, my wife has, has turned me on to this new, this podcast, new to me podcast that I have just fallen in love with. Uh, it, it is just so well told. So it's by Wondery, which if you've ever heard of any of their other podcasts, then you might know from a production quality what I'm talking about. But the, the specific uh, podcast that I'm talking about is American Scandal. And it is just so entertaining. Uh, every quote season is just like a handful of episodes. So, you know, a whole story might be, you know, five episodes or something. And they'll, they'll talk about it. And then the last episode of that series will be like with an expert, just kind of describing like what was going on during the time or whatever, you know, like why this, why this thing mattered. Uh, But 
just the the production, the audio quality, the use of space and sound as they as they tell stories. There'll be uh, you know um, dramatic parts of the story where they'll like you know retell things or conversations, and you know there have been times where like. I'm sitting there alone in my office and, you know, typing away and then listening to something and I'll hear something, you know, in that sounds like it's off in the distance on the right hand side. I mean, I'm like, what, what was that? Only to realize like, Oh, that was from the podcast. Like it was, but it's just, it's mixed so good. So I highly recommend that the stories are really interesting. Um, you know, they'll give you like a insight into a particular story, uh, you know, so one example might be um there was a story on big tobacco and the the lawsuit that happened in the 90s and some of the things that were going on around that for example um you know the 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 lawsuit that the state of Mississippi had against the big tobacco companies and you know what led up to it and like the the ramifications of it it's it's stories like that you know every it'll be some big story that happened in the U S at that time. And like why it was a big deal. So, uh, I'll have a link to that. Then, uh, we got an email, uh, that we talked about, um, data grip, um, not data grip, um, but JetBrains tools in a previous tip of the week. Um, uh, I don't remember the specific episode that we did, but, um, Rasmus wrote in and he was like, Hey, Specific to data grip, there are some awesome things that we did not mention. And so, uh, he, he called these out and I thought, you know, Hey, we should, we should definitely mention these because these are pretty awesome. I didn't even know about some of these. One of them is if you have other JetBrains IDEs, like say a WebStorm or an IntelliJ or something, and you have a data grip license and you add a data source to that IDE, then that IDE magically recognizes your strings inside of your code, be it uh, Java or JavaScript or whatever. It recognizes those as SQL and will give you syntax highlighting and auto-completing. So that's awesome. Like if you if you were in your Java file writing in like a select statement, it would you know give you the proper syntax highlighting and and auto-complete. I love that uh, although i would recommend that you not write sql inside of your java i was gonna um, say there should have been a warning but yeah, that's fine there really should be <laughs> uh but here was another one though that was super awesome because i think i talked about in the past um that in like say a data grip you can highlight the uh, like a specific server or even a database within a server and you can give it a specific color and then any um, tab, any query tabs that you have or consoles that you have attached to that specific database or server will inherit that color. And so my trick was I, I would like to use like red for databases that I don't want to, I don't, you know, I want to be careful about not updating or changing things to, you know, and green for local databases that I don't care about, right. That I, that I'm free to, you know, insert or change or delete or whatever. And uh, he mentioned that you can set under the options for it, you can mark the database as read-only in your data source configuration. And then that way, you'll get a warning that you'd have to confirm if you try to do any write operations, even if your credentials have the right permissions to do it. 
So it's like an extra layer of protection, um, you know, before you do something bad. That's a really, really good tip. Right? Because you don't want to be that guy that accidentally drops the production database. Yeah. Yeah, you just remind me of um, a really good podcast I've been listening to called American Scandal. They had an episode where. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was was also in episode 157. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Every time there's a really good one about like the cigarette ads in the nineties. Oh, geez. <sighs> I give up. Uh, that's excellent. All right. So I, I have several here, so I'm going to try and blow through them. You, you would more were coming to me as the episode went on. And I was like, I got to get it out here. Cause I'm going to forget it next time. So the first one, seeing as how this episode was all about APIs. First one is called API blueprint. Uh, the link is apiblueprint.org. It'll be in the show notes. Definitely go check those out. But this allows you to design and document APIs. So using almost like a markdown type thing, it allows you to set this up. So definitely go check that out. Might be worth uh, looking at if you plan on making an API. Um, the next couple are from Slack. The, the first one is from somebody named the letter I on Slack. There's no name associated with him at all, but he dropped this over in the tip of the week or the tips and tools channel. And this one is actually really exciting. And I can't believe I've never heard of it. We were talking about visualizing data earlier with the Python thing, like the favorite things, dude, Apache superset allows you to hook up to data storage and visualize it in ways I can think of so many times this would have come in handy in things that we were doing. How many, how many customers do I have? How many people are in this? How many orders? Whatever. Like you can hook it up and it'll give you charts of your data. That's awesome with a UI to be able to explore it. So again, Apache projects are amazing. Um, the next one from one of our favorites, Mike RG. He posted a link in called use console log like a pro. So if you use Chrome dev tools, you know, when I first saw this, I was like, ah, what am I going to learn in here? Okay. So you've got your logs, your infos, your debugs, warns, all that. All right. That's all cool. What was really interesting though, is there is a console dot assert, which I never knew existed. There's a console dot count never knew existed. <laughs> Um, a dir, there's a group. You can actually group console logs together. So there's a lot of little tips in here that are really cool. Didn't know existed. Definitely check it out. If you do any kind of, um, debugging for front ends or anything in Chrome. All right. The next one again, cause we're talking about APIs and we were talking about rest a lot in this one. I know that we've talked about Postman in the past. I don't know if we've ever used Fiddler tool as a as a tip of the week or anything, but if we have whatever, it's a fantastic tool if you need to basically see the kind of things that are happening. Like let's say that you have a website up and you need to see the traffic that's hitting your web server, especially from you trying to see what was posted to it, what the results are and all that. This tool is amazing because you can capture that and then you can replay it. You can even modify the parameters and stuff in there. So 
Postman, we love because you can set up your gets, your posts, and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't allow you to capture traffic that's happening at the time. Fiddler tool is kind of like both tools in one, except not quite as easy to generate requests from scratch. So if you're trying to investigate things, definitely check that one out. We'll have a link there. It's a tool from Telerik. They bought them a few years ago. And then this last one I found out today, as a matter of fact. So I saw something where there were Docker builds running where we were passing arguments into it. So if you if you look at Docker files, you can specify an arg in a Docker file, meaning that you can pass variables in to the Docker build when you run it. And one of the things that I've seen pass around are like user secrets or tokens or keys, things that really should be private. Well, one of the things that I found out about that accidentally as I was looking through this is if you call a Docker build and you pass in an arg, that is actually stored with the image or container. So if you ever go to inspect it in the future, you can actually see credentials that were passed to it when it was created. Kind of stinks, right? You don't want that. So um, there is a thing called uh, Docker Build Kit that they still have set in experimental. If you're running Docker 19 or higher, then you have these features available to you. But there's a way to pass a secret to where you can actually do dash dash secret when you do your Docker build. And basically what you're doing is you're bind mounting a file and then you can use that secret within it. And then nothing's logged. No sensitive information is logged or can be inspected off those containers or images in the future. So if you are doing anything like that, where you need tokens inside that build, you know, check this out. It's a safer, more sanitized way of doing this. Man, it's killing me. I know that we've talked about that um, that console one before. I, we've talked about console stuff because I know at one point I'd done a console.table. Like yep. that's one that I never knew it had existed that is awesome if you're trying to look at like uh, object arrays of objects and that kind of stuff. But this one, like I said, I, th- there were like little tips in here that I didn't even know existed. So, yeah. Um you can never have too many debug tools. Yeah. By the way, Fiddler was one of mine, like episode two. <laughs> was it really? <laughs> you liar. <laughs> Did we always have tips? If you go to episode one slash episode one. I think so. I'm pretty sure that we did. Yeah. I think right. that was always one of our things. Now you got me curious on that. Yeah, we did. Uh, you can right click control period as required using directives. Wow. It's like very C sharp oriented. <laughs> yeah. What what everybody doesn't know behind the scenes is probably the greatest amount of stress per episode is, oh man, what is our survey? And oh man, <laughs> what what is my tip of the week? I mean, we take these surveys serious, y'all. That's right. You All of it. Understand. All of it so, serious. Now, so yeah, tips, tricks, uh, control period and uh, web, web API route debugger. Look at that. I will say that um, seeing this uh, superset Apache project, like we got to get on a live stream and play with this, play with some data, man. Cause this looks 
awesome. That's sick, isn't it? Like the, like a, the gallery for some of these examples that they're given. It's amazing. Whole, like if this is as anything as as simple as like what Apache Drill was to go start playing with data, like I looks want, really good. I want this in my life. Dude, I want this thing to, is beautiful. Yeah, there's oh, so, so many cool visualizations for it too. So hold up. I'm going to read these real quick because they're not that they're not that long. But these are the supported databases: Amazon Redshift, Druid. I don't know what the next one is. Squirrel, something. I don't know Island. what that is. Okay, Google BigQuery, ClickHouse, Dremio, um, Exasol, Firebird, Greenplum, IBM DB2. They support DB2, probably because it's JDBC. MySQL, SQL Server, Monet DB, Oracle, Postgres, Presto which is awesome. Snowflake, SQLite, Trano, Rockset, Vertica, and I don't know what that last one is. Uh, and they say there's many more. So, yeah, man, being able to visualize things like this quickly and easily is just fantastic. Elastic's one of them, too. If you uh, go into the more. Oh, man. See, yeah, this this needs to be played with. It was literally, uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about in uh, episode 152 about things that are awesome about Python was being able to visualize data really easy. But now like, and, Hey, you can just like point this thing to it. I really want to do a, like a live stream play with this thing. <laughs> yeah. It looks really cool. 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 Yeah. I don't know. I, I would say that Joe and I would get on Twitch and do it, but I don't know that he twitches anymore. So, uh, I guess with that, uh, we would say like, Hey, you know, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to get your podcast apps. We're probably there. Uh, if somehow you're hearing this and we aren't on your favorite podcast destination and you haven't already subscribed to us, probably means you have some awesome friends. And, uh, so, you know, buy them a cup of coffee or a beer, you know, whatever is appropriate. And, uh, you know, tell us your thanks. Uh, for them pointing you to us by uh, heading to www.codingblocks.net slash review. And you can find some helpful links to uh, leave us a review, which we, we would greatly appreciate. That would be your way of getting us a coffee or a beer. How's that? Totally. Totally. We actually, um, on that page too, uh, we always forget to mention this, but there's instructions for getting around uh, the fingerprint, uh, the fingerprint access on Android phones. So if you want to like go subscribe some of your coworkers to the podcast, cause you know, <laughs> they, they need some of these tips and tricks. Then uh, we've got some instructions up there for, uh, for Android uh, versions, something and up. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. I'm glad you remembered that. Um, it, so as mentioned, and you probably heard throughout this show, we've got a lot of links in this show. So while you're up there, check out the, the show notes or even on your phone or whatever you're listening on, uh, Outlaws mentioned in the past, chances are you can see the show notes in your pod player there. So um, you can send your questions, feedbacks, and rant to our Slack channel. And uh, follow us on, on the tw- Twitterverse at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net and find all sorts of social links at the top of the page. Also, um, we've got some tips there uh, for... Uh, <laughs> How to get in people's phones. So that's slash review. So make sure you hit that up. Right. Before the feds take it down. Cease and desist. <laughs>